Hello and welcome to the fifth episode. This is going to be our NBA uh, Conference Finals preview. And we're going to go over the semifinals. And goddamn, Julius, what a semifinals we had. There were some good things that we talked about in the last podcast and some bad things. I think we're just going to hop in and go straight to the bad thing where we both were way off on the Phoenix Suns and Dallas Mavericks series. I think all the analysts and everyone who discussed it uh, were. Um, I said that Dallas might win one or two games. Uh, I believe you said you would give Dallas one uh, because of Luka. Well, they won four in seven games. And completely embarrassed the Suns at home in a Game 7. Um, Luca, as he says, everyone talks tough when they're up. And did he back up everything he was saying um, versus Devin Booker not backing up anything he was saying? Uh, game 7, Devin Booker, Chris Paul combined for 21 points. But to put that into pers- some perspective for you, uh, they're down at 30 at half. They both combined have three points compared to Luca, who had 27 points, which is exactly the same amount of points the entire Phoenix Suns team had at half. So one guy backed up all the stuff he was talking in Game 7 while the other one and your leader and... I'm going to put this in air quotations. No one can see me. Point God uh, combined for three through a half. Um, To say that I was completely and utterly wrong is something I don't do a lot. But I was way off on this series. It started off 2-0. Everything was looking good. Looked like the Suns knew how to play basketball. Chris Paul turned 37 and decided that he wasn't going to play basketball anymore. I, I, I don't, I'm shocked by what happened. Um, don't get me wrong. I think Luca is a great basketball player. Um, but the Mavericks, I'm not taking anything away from the rest of that roster, but it was Luca and others versus the Suns. And the first two games of the series made it look like it was going to be that way. And then I don't know what switched game three. I don't know if it was getting back to Dallas. I don't know if it was Brunson finally showing up since he didn't show up the first two games. Um, Dinwiddie obviously had a crazy game seven. Uh, but, um, you know, I don't. I really don't know what clicked for this team. I don't know if it was uh, Luka trying not to shoot 30 times a game and being more passive, which you talked about. Uh, if this team can play more through him instead of relying on him. Uh, that they would win, and that's exactly what happened. It's Like I said, that series was 2-0. It looked like the Suns were the best team in the NBA. It looked like they were going to possibly sweep, maybe lose one game, and then everyone for the Mavericks stepped up. Uh, Doncic started not trying to win by shooting 30, 40 times a game. I don't think he ever shot 40 times a game in the series, but you know what I mean. And um, he became more of a facilitator, and even though it's, the assist numbers won't show that, uh, they weren't those cheap. I'm a kick out to a wide open guy, let him shoot. Hopefully he makes it to get an assist. It was, all right, I'm going to pass it up and let Jalen go to work. I'm going to pass it up and let Dinwiddie go to work. 
And uh, he kind of just took a step back, and that's a huge growth for him. It's why they won the series, in my opinion. Uh, don't get me wrong. Luka balled out. 27 points at half. Tied the Phoenix Suns for how many points? It felt like he couldn't miss. That little one-legged step back over Ayton, over Bridges, over Booker, over anyone who was guarding him. I don't know how he makes so many of them. I don't know if Dirk was like, when he first got into the league, like, learn how to shoot this shot. But um, he was on fire on Game 7 and could not miss. And it was a very, very impressive thing to see. And also, as an NBA fan, though, with no dog in that fight, because I am not a Dallas and or Phoenix fan, um, it was really sad. It was really sad to see, too, because, you know, Game 7s are this like the epitome of sports, right? Like winner takes all, winner go home. Um, besides the Super Bowl, I feel like game sevens are the biggest thing you can get out of a sports series. And to just have the home team just shit the bed in front of their home fans, I just, it was terrible to watch. Um, but it was also great to watch to see the brilliance of Luca. but just to see a team collapse and feel like they have I don't like to say they have no heart or no soul, but that's just what it felt like. It felt like they they didn't want to fight. And and the people who should have been fighting, I felt like just were nowhere to be found. Okay, so there's there's so much to get into with this series. And I've been thinking about all day where to even begin. I've got so much to say. You already know why I have so much to say. But um, I'll start off by saying, you know, you talked about how this was the ugly because of what we predicted for the Suns. We both did predict that the Suns would win this series and win it uh, rather convincingly. So let's get into this. We talked about, or you talked about, you know, what clicked with Dallas, what made the difference. In my opinion, not much. And what do I mean by that? You look at games three through six in this series. Now, Dallas lost the first two. We know this. Games three through six, when the Mavericks started coming back in this series, Luka Doncic in those games, games three through six, shot 41% from the field and 21% from three-point range. Luka was not that guy. Those are Westbrook numbers. Luka was not that guy in games three through six. And yet, Dallas won three out of those four games. This speaks to what I've been saying all along. This Dallas Mavericks supporting cast, I know they don't have a superstar second guy. I know it's not as exciting as having a pair of Splash Brothers or not as exciting as having Katie and Kyrie on the same team or not as exciting as LeBron and AD and all this other stuff. This Dallas Mavericks supporting cast, okay, they're, they're not the dream team. But you got to start putting some respect on their name. These boys showed up in games where Luka was not efficient at all. Jalen Brunson, we talked about this guy. This is a guy that stepped up in the Utah series in Doncic's absence. Jalen Brunson scored 18 or plus points, 18 or more points in every game, in four straight games. Four straight games to close out the series. He was 18, 21, 23, 18. He was consistent. He was the most consistent guy. And then you had others step up here and there. You talked about Spencer Dinwiddie. He had 21 in the first half of game seven. You know, we talk about Luka like it was him by himself. Dinwiddie was right there neck and neck with him, which, again, speaks to how sorry Phoenix was. But it also speaks to, again, you have other players on this team that can ball. You have other players on this team who can do things with the ball in their hands. And I, what I do have to give Luka credit is he did let those guys 
show up and show out later in the series. He pulled back. The evidence is there kind of statistically. In the first four, in the first six games that Luca played in the first in the postseason. Let's, let's keep in mind he missed a couple games to start the postseason. In his first six postseason games this year, Luka Doncic averaged 4.8 turnovers a game. That's right in line with what he's been doing all year. And it's an indication because, you know, he's not a, not a dumb player or anything. He's just trying to do too much. The last four games, he cut that down from 4.8 turnovers to 2.8. Again, a sign that you're pulling back. You're not trying to do too much. You're not trying to win these games by yourself. Because you don't need to. The supporting cast is good enough to do what's in that title. Support you. Let them support you. Luca did that, and that's what I did not expect to happen. So I'll give him credit for that. But that said, the Mavericks played good, not great basketball, and still won four out of five. Now, why does that happen? The Suns' offense went away. And we need to have a conversation about this. The Phoenix Suns, during the regular season, averaged 115 points a game. Against New Orleans, came down a little bit, as you expect in the playoffs, but they averaged 111 a game. In the four games that Phoenix lost in this series, they averaged 93 points a game. Now put that number in perspective. The lowest scoring team this year was the Oklahoma City Thunder. And they were the lowest scoring because they shut down their whole team because, you know, they don't even try to disguise their tanking. And I'll talk about the Thunder another day. But the Thunder, with a bunch of bums who you've never heard of, and I, I use bums as respectfully as I can, but relative to the NBA, they're bums, they managed to average 103 points a game. The worst offense in the league averaged 103 a game. Because, again, inflated offense, new NBA. You averaged 93 points in your four losses, Phoenix. So you were 10 points worse than the worst offense in the NBA in the four games you lost. That's what clicked for Dallas. The Suns not showing up four times. Which leads me into what I really want to talk about. I don't ever, and the rock means ever, hear point God again. The name would be blasphemous enough if it, were, if it were remotely accurate. There is nothing God-like about Chris Paul. I'm sorry. This is the fifth time that a Chris Paul team has blown a 2-0 lead. This is the fifth time where you've been in prime position to win a series and you've failed to the close. With a bunch of different teams, in three different decades, this has happened. So, yeah, I'm going to be hard on Chris Paul. You know why? Because, again, of that stupid nickname, which needs to go away, okay, that's, that's not even talk about the blasphemy about it. It's just completely inaccurate. You, Chris Paul, were the one that the media and that the Internet tried to force into the MVP conversation before you broke your hand, before you hurt your hand. Before he hurt his hand, everybody on Chris Paul's got to be MVP. This is Chris Paul's team. Look at the culture he's brought to Phoenix. They couldn't win anything before he got there. And that's, that's the credit that Chris Paul gets. Chris Paul, a point guy, gets credit for just going to the playoffs in a league where the majority of the teams qualify for the playoffs, especially now. Chris Paul gets all his credit just for qualifying for the playoffs. 
He has never been required to win, which is why I laugh constantly when I hear about these legacy questions. How does this affect Chris Paul's legacy? The first 16 years of losing didn't affect his legacy. Why would the 17th year affect it? Okay, it's easy to have a legacy when nobody's going to hold you accountable. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous that Chris Paul has gotten away with this for this long. And I'm not here to tell you that Chris Paul's not a great player. He's going to go to the Hall of Fame. But for this guy to be a Hall of Famer, a first ballot Hall of Famer at that, where is the accountability? All year long, it was his team, his culture. As soon as they lose, everybody wants to say, oh, it's Devin Booker's team. No, 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 y'all said it was Chris Paul's team all year. Where was he? Games three through seven, you're up 2-0. All you got to do is play decent, you're going to win two more games. What do you do? You make 18 shots, and you turn the ball over 18 times. Now, y'all told me Chris Paul don't do that. He don't turn the ball over. Except for when he does. And when does he do it? When you need him not to. It's, it's nice that he was able to close out the Pelicans in spectacular fashion. Give him credit for that. But this is what Chris Paul does. He's a front runner. Bad team, no defense like the Pelicans. No experience in the playoffs. Oh, yeah, I'll show off on them. What happens when your team needs you? You, the engineer, the floor general, whatever over-exaggerated term you want to use to describe him, in the most important game of the season, he led his team to 27 points in the first half. Thanks for playing. Appreciate that. Now, I can't think of a, another mere mortal who could have put up a 27-point half. Don't ever use point guard around me again. Be very clear about that. Now, I haven't forgot about you, Devin Booker, because I'm, I'm a fair guy. I just had to go off on Chris Paul because nobody's calling Devin Booker a god. Had the Suns won this series and won this championship, nobody would say it's Devin Booker's championship. They would say it's Chris Paul's. But you don't get off scot-free, Devin Booker. As you alluded to, three points combined for Chris Paul and Devin Booker in the, in the first half. The second half, all that scoring they did was irrelevant. That, that was... That was window dressing. That was garbage. I shouldn't even count it. And guess what? I won't count it. In the first half of game seven, Devin Booker was 0 for 7. Hey, Devin, that's not what we mean when we say game seven. It doesn't mean miss all seven shots. That's not what the seven in game seven means. Game six, six for 17 for Devin Booker. So in six quarters consecutively, six quarters, a game and a half, with your season on the line, you, Devin Booker, who is supposed to be the next Mamba, you go six for 24. Now, there are other ways to impact the game when your shot's off. You can facilitate. You can help Chris Paul out because, you know, he disappeared. Maybe you can run some point and make some plays. No, no, you didn't do that either. Game six and seven combined. Five assists, 12 turnovers. What in the world is that? That's Ryan Leaf numbers. What, what are you doing, Devin Booker? Where are you? Mamba? I don't think so. That was an earthworm type performance, not a Mamba. Terrible. So you got to get some of this smoke too. I'm embarrassed that I picked Phoenix because of the lack of will they showed to fight. DeAndre Ayton had a decent series. Literally disappeared from this game. I don't know what happened with that, but literally got pulled out of the game. And in a game where not a single soul on the Phoenix Suns showed any heart, Aiden got pulled out. That says a lot. 
So you outquit the rest of a quitting team. Wow. Michael Bridges. Before the playoffs started, I picked him to be kind of a breakout player, a guy who was going to get his name known in this postseason. He averaged 14 points a game the regular season, and to me, Michael Bridges is right now the best 3 and D wing player in the league. You average 14 a game in the regular season. Your team needs somebody to step up. And in seven games, you never exceeded your scoring average. You never gave your team a game over 14 points. None of you stepped up. And I've just never seen a team, a 64-win team, that smoked the NBA. I mean, they had the Western Conference wrapped up, it seemed like, since January. And to have no will and no fight against a team that, again, didn't play that great. Let's keep in mind, the Mavericks were up by 30 at halftime in Game 7. They scored 57 points. That's not a great half in today's NBA. That's, that's on a pace for 114 in a game. You see that all the time. Plenty of teams averaging 114 a game now or close to it. A 57-point half shouldn't put you away. Dallas didn't play great. Two guys did in Game 7. And you let a slightly above-average half put you hopelessly behind. And then I waited. Because I said, I could go to bed now. I could go to bed at 9 o'clock. But you know what? I'm going to see what's going to happen. All these guys are going to fight back in the second half at all. They already got smoked by 30. If you have any pride, you're going to try to do something in the second half. This is an NBA where everything relies on the three. You can make up large deficits in a hurry. And what do you do in the second half? You give up an 8-0 run right out of the gate. Yeah, thanks. Just, just completely show me you're not going to show up tonight. So, Phoenix, I'm not even a Suns fan, and I'm angry. I'm just angry as a fan of the sport that in the most critical game of the season, with allegedly legacies and such on the line, but not really, you just decide you're not going to fight. If the game didn't go your way in the first three minutes and you gave up at home, I've never heard of the Phoenix Suns crowd booing before. I expect that from Philadelphia, New York, Lakers fans. I expect them to boo their teams. Phoenix fans? Some of the most relaxed fans in the league, at least on their own team. They booed you? I agree with them. I was booing too. I'm, I'm done with them. I'm done. Don't worry, y'all. We'll edit some of that out so it's a shorter listen for y'all. <laughs> uh, no, I'm joking. Um, so, yeah, so definitely agree with the Devin Booker thing. Um, I it The whole sun, the game. So, yeah, I know game seven was a disaster, uh, but you're right. They lost four out of five, right? So, like, you, you're up 2-0. You need two wins, and you lose four out of five. Um, Aiden, I know you said he had a good series. I, to me, he didn't because, to me, yes, you have Chris Paul. You have Devin Booker. Yes, I know Devin Booker was in the MVP votes. I know Chris Paul was before he got hurt um, or was kind of, in, like, however you want to phrase it. But Aiden, there's nobody on Dallas that can guard him or should be able to guard him. The fact that he wasn't getting 30 and 15 a game like easily was embarrassing to me. I don't, there's no one on that team. Maxi Kleber, Dwight Powell, you're telling me Aiden is a max deal fringe guy and he can't beat Dorian Finney Smith in the post? Like, I just don't, yeah, I, it's, Dallas was running some small lineups at points during the series where Finney Smith was the center. Or you had Bertans as the like, 
why is Aiton not looking like prime Shaq, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, and I, I say that loosely because Shaq was obviously the most dominant player when he was playing in his prime. But you, that's the point I'm trying to make, though. There's no one on Dallas who should have even been able to stop DeAndre Ayton. The fact that he essentially took himself out of games, and he, rumor has it, he did not want to go back in for Game 7. Uh, I don't know that for facts, but the rumors out there is that Monty Williams told him, do you want to go back in and keep playing? And he said no. Um, which, if that's the case, he's not getting a max deal from the Suns, nor should he. Um, but I think, again, I think it just speaks to the overall culture, like you said, of the Phoenix organization. And and you brought up great points about, look at Chris Paul and the culture change that he did. What culture change? To give up and not fight for your playoff? If you're not going to fight in a Game 7, when are you going to fight for your championship hopes? I don't care if I'm down by 50. You should be out there gunning until, what, six minutes left in the fourth quarter? Five minutes left in the fourth quarter? Shit, Jason Kidd cost me $1,000 by leaving Jalen Brunson in the game for to get more points. And they were up by 45. And Brunson's still out there? So, I mean, the fact that Aiton didn't even want to go out there and try, where he could have, yes, I know you're down by 40. Go get some easy buckets at the rim. Go get some defensive stops. See if you can't claw your... See if you're not... Maybe you're down by 20 going into the fourth quarter. Did we not just see Milwaukee in the Milwaukee-Boston series come back from 14 points down? And Milwaukee has no one who can score besides Giannis. So the fact that the Suns, the best team in the NBA, got shoved down our throats all season about how great they are, how they're going to run through the West, no one can contend with them. To be out in the semis to a Dallas Mavericks team, which, as you said was not even putting up 120 points, 130 points a game. Yes, I know they scored 123 in the game seven, but that game was over by halftime. So now they're just going out there just shooting whatever they want because it doesn't matter. You give NBA players the green light to go shoot whatever shot they want, It they're going to make most of them. They're NBA players for a reason. So... it Again, as an NBA fan, I, I do not, I'm not a Phoenix Suns fan. I'm not a Dallas Mavericks fan. As just a fan of the NBA, I'm embarrassed for the Phoenix Suns. I'm embarrassed as a fan. And that was, in my lifetime, I think one of the worst, if not the worst, performance I've seen in a Game 7 ever. Um, it Again, the final score doesn't show how embarrassing it was. Because like you said, 57 points and a half was... Doncic making seven step back, one footed jumpers, Dinwiddie playing out of control and banging down all the shots he was shooting. Like, again, it wasn't even like they were great shots that were falling for these guys. The team was just not missing. And I don't know if that broke the Suns out the gate, but even out the gate, they didn't even look like they wanted to play that game seven. They didn't even look like they wanted to be there that night, which, again, I think that speaks more to the culture and to the players. I think Monty Williams is a great coach. Um, you know, again, you and I have had this discussion offline. I think NBA coaches are the, the most overrated coaches out of all the coaches of all the leagues. Not saying that coaches don't do anything. I just think that in the NBA, one player can carry a load versus like drawing up schemes and drawing up. You don't, if you have Giannis, you don't really need to draw an out of bounds play. Like get the ball to Giannis, let him go to work, right? Give the ball to KD. Let him, let Steve Nash prove you don't need to be a great coach, right? 
Uh, David Blatt proved you don't need to be a great coach. Like, if you have a great player, they're going to do great things. Um, you know, I think Luke Walton, a prime example of that with Golden State when Steve Kerr was out. Uh, you know, again, again, I'm not going to go too far into the coaching because I don't think this is all Monty Williams. I'm sure he said everything he needed to say in the locker room. I'm sure he tried to hype the guys up. But if you just don't have it in you to do it, you know, who knows what Chris Paul said in the locker room? What if he was like, here we go again? Like, I, I honestly don't know what was because the way they came out at half was not a team fired up like, let's get back in this game. It was like, let's get this game over with. Um, but I'm with you. I'm done talking about the Suns. Congratulations, Dallas Mavericks. Congratulations, Luca, because now your infamy and your fame is on to another level. Um, with everybody that's left in the playoffs, I think you're the one guy that the internet and the NBA want to push because you're the young star. Um, uh, there's other factors that go into it. I'm not going to talk about race and other things, but he's a young white European star on Dallas again, like a Dirk Nowitzki. And um, if he even makes it to the finals, he doesn't even have to win it. If he makes it to the finals with this Dallas Mavericks team, he, I, his legacy is essentially set in stone already, right? Like Dirk, Dirk lost as a one seed to to the eight seed Golden State Warriors, and no one talks about that anymore because he beat the LeBron and D Wade Chris Bosh team in the finals, right? No one talks about any of Dirk's shortcomings or. Was he not a great player because he won that one championship? So I think if Luca carries this team to a finals, they don't. I don't even think they have to win. I think if he just carries them to the finals, I think, I think his legacy, and at least in Dallas and in NBA lore for the next four to five years, I think he's set. But um, so congratulations, Mavericks! You made Julius and myself look like fools. Uh, we don't like to say that. Uh, and Phoenix Suns, uh, F you. Just really quickly, because I don't want to continue to to beat up Phoenix anymore. They're, they're a waste of time to discuss at this point, honestly. Um, but just as a point of clarification, when I, when I talked about DeAndre Ayton, not to suggest that he had a great series. It was not a great series. But when you look at what all the Suns did in the regular season and compare it to what they did against Dallas, DeAndre Ayton was the closest one not Devin Booker, not Chris Paul. It was Aiden who was the closest one to what he's been giving them all year. Now, certainly, certainly, I wish he did have the mentality to say, you know what? If they're going to put six foot seven guys on me that aren't even athletic, give me the ball. At the same time, anytime any of Phoenix's role players do anything, it the credit always goes right back to Chris Paul. Oh, look at that IQ. Look how he sets up his teammates. Look how he runs the offense. He gets credit for stuff he had nothing to do with. So since we're giving Chris Paul credit by proxy, there has to be blame by proxy. That's called being fair. And so if DeAndre Ayton is not getting the ball in advantageous matchups, I'm still going back to the fact that it ain't DeAndre Ayton bringing the ball up the court. Why aren't you giving it to him? Let him try to do something. Now, again, in game seven, he missed shots right at the basket. He didn't help the cause either. Nobody did. And what stuck out to me was Monty Williams was asked about DeAndre Ayton, why he only played, I think it was like 17 minutes in this game. And Monty Williams would only say it's an internal matter. Now, this is Monty Williams. For those who aren't familiar with him, uh, his coaching days in New Orleans and Phoenix, 
there might not be more of a player's coach in the league than Monty Williams. Monty Williams absorbs all the blame anytime anything goes wrong. And he's always been that guy. He protects his players as much as any coach I've seen. There are certain players, certain coaches, <clears throat> Frank Vogel, who will throw certain players they don't like under the bus publicly and have fun doing it. Monty's not that guy. Monty will do everything in his power to protect his players. So the fact that Monty Williams couldn't even bring himself to defend DeAndre Aiden, calling it an internal matter and not defending him, that's the closest Monty Williams will ever get to throwing a player under the bus. I don't know what happened there, but that said a lot to me. A lot was said without being said in that case. So, again, Aiden, again, he was the closest thing to being his normal self in this series on the Suns, which, again, is not saying a whole lot. But, you know, I just, have, I just wanted to say, I don't think he had a great series, and he's got some explaining to do for what happened in Game 7. All right, so now that we have completely destroyed and dismissed the Suns appropriately, let's move on to the other series out West. No heart. <laughs> yes, no heart indeed. So let's go to a series with some heart. The Warriors and the Grizzlies. Now, this game, this series was interesting because of the constant kind of shifts back and forth as to what the narrative was in this series. We saw Golden State have a performance in this series like Phoenix did in Game 7. We saw the Warriors completely take a game off. The difference is they didn't take off the series deciding game, unlike some teams. And then there was this mass overreaction. And that's the thing I don't understand, is that even in these series, when you're seeing from game to game that there's going to be some ebb and flow, why overreact to one particular game in a series? Yes, Golden State was down by 50-plus. And there's no excuse to ever be down 50-plus, as far as I'm concerned, for no NBA team. There's no excuse for the Thunder to be down 50. And I keep picking on the Thunder tonight, but they deserve you shouldn't be down 50 as an NBA team against anybody. But it shows me, it tells me, when you're down 50 as an NBA team, you just didn't bother to show up that night. However, the ridiculousness that came from that game, the fact that there were people out there who had the unmitigated goal to say, oh, the Warriors can't beat the Grizzlies without Steve Kerr. Now, we just talked in the last segment about how the value of coaching in the NBA in particular, is extremely overrated. And yet people were saying, oh, they need Steve Kerr, they need Steve Kerr. Uh, if Steve Kerr's not back, Golden State's in trouble in this series. Why, because they lost a the game that they didn't care about? Did you not watch them on the bench when they were down 50? Did those guys seem concerned? Did they seem like they cared? Did they seem like they tried? No. They seem like, you know, we just want to play the next game in San Francisco. We don't even want to win the series here. That's what I saw. Now, Mike Brown has been in this position before where he's filled in for Steve Kerr in the playoffs. Mike Brown's career coaching record in the playoffs with the Warriors is 14 and 1. 14 and 1. Newsflash, that's a higher winning percentage than Steve Kerr has as the head coach of the Warriors in the playoffs. And that's not to say that Mike Brown is better than Steve Kerr. I guarantee you Mike Brown won't be 14-1 with the Kings next year because coaching doesn't make that much of a difference. But the point here is 
it is nothing short of idiotic to say that this Warriors team is going to lose because Mike Brown's coaching. And yet everybody was saying that after game five. Not everybody, a lot of people, way too many people were saying that after game five. Stop with the lunacy. Stop with the dumb narratives. Stop making yourselves look stupid. The other stupid narrative, and it ties right hand in hand. Memphis is better without John Barrett. Look what they did in game five. I don't care what Memphis's record was without John Morant in the regular season. Have you watched John Morant play? You don't lose that guy and become a better team. Credit to the Grizzlies for being resilient. Credit to the Grizzlies for not being a one-man band. But you don't lose your best player. No team in the history of the NBA has lost their best player and gotten better. If you did get better after losing a player, legitimately better, as in advancing in the playoffs farther without a player, he wasn't your best player. So I don't ever want to hear that again either. Let's stop with the they're better without John Morant stuff. Because when they really needed it, when the Warriors really felt like showing up in game six, you know what Memphis is missing? John Morant. And there's a domino effect that happens when John Morant isn't around. We've talked about our boy, Dylan Brooks. Dylan! Mr. Mr. Confidence. Mr. Irrational Confidence. Mr. Delusional Confidence. I'll, I'll say it again. I'll give this man credit because if I was as confident in anything in life as Dylan Brooks is about his shot for no reason, I'd probably be a billionaire by now. This guy's confidence is on another level, but it's without merit. Dylan Brooks, in this series, including the game he got ejected in, so he played six games. He really played like 5.1 games. We'll give him six. Shot under 40% in every game, including the game that he got. He got ejected in two minutes from one game, and he still managed to brick three shots and go over three. He had to keep the streak alive. Under 40% in every game. His best game was game six. That was an 11 for 28 game. Because that man's just not going to stop shooting. No matter how many times that ball doesn't go in. Dylan Brooks, in the last three games of the series, took 60 shots. And missed a whole lot of them. That's the job around effect. When Dylan Brooks sees that there's no John Morant, he thinks he's John Morant. Don't worry, guys. I'll score the 47 points that John Morant scored in the first game we won in this series. It might take me 47 shots, but I'll get 47 points. You're not going to win with Dylan Brooks taking that many shots. And so for no other reason, you need John Morant to keep the ball out of Dylan Brooks' hands. I appreciate Dylan Brooks' effort on defense. I appreciate his hustle. Is a is willingness to go chase down loose balls, all the other intangibles. But everything that man does outside of shooting gets mitigated and maybe even canceled out completely by the fact that he takes so many bad shots. So many shots that just look bad, that push shot that just looks ugly. And he misses most of them. And then I'll just talk one more time about Jaron Jackson Jr. because the same way you feel about DeAndre Ayton is how I feel about Jaron Jackson Jr. And Jackson has the ability to knock down a three-pointer. Even with the form, the shooting form, 
of an eight-year-old girl. He's an effective shooter. But he's not a great shooter, and he's talented around the basket. We talked about Dallas not having anybody as far as an interior presence. Golden State doesn't have anybody. And I'm including Draymond Green, with all due respect. Golden State doesn't have anybody who should be able to guard Jackson in, in the post. And Golden State got away with putting Andrew Wiggins on Jaron Jackson Jr. for most of the series because of his unwillingness to get in the paint and score consistently. So that was problematic. The last thing I want to talk about, now I'll actually leave the Splash Brothers to you. I'm not even going to discuss them. The last thing I'm going to talk about is, you know, people keep trying to push Steven Adams. And I, I, don't, I don't know what it is about him. He's just another one of those guys, you know, to a lesser extent of a Chris Paul type where people just want to find ways and reasons to give you credit that's undue. Steven Adams seems like a great guy, a fun guy. He's got the Aquaman look. He's got everything going for him. I, I think he's a pretty cool guy. We know how strong he is. Steven Adams has not been an effective basketball player for a long time. You know, there are people who used, used to say, oh, Russell Westbrook steals rebounds from Steven Adams when he was in Oklahoma City, when they were both in Oklahoma City together. Since they've not been teammates anymore, Steven Adams' rebounding has gone down. So who's stealing them that? But for whatever reason, when Memphis was forced to go bigger in this series, they threw Steven Adams in there. And they had a little bit of success, again, when Golden State didn't care to compete. All I heard was, man, look, look what Memphis is doing. They're finally making Golden State pay for going small. Steven Adams is the difference. Stop. Stop. Steven Adams is never the difference. Don't ever say that again. Tonight is a night of don't ever say that again. And this is one of the things I don't want to hear. Don't ever say Steven Adams is the difference again. In the deciding game, you let Kavon Looney. Let me repeat. You let Kavon Looney. Pulled down 22 rebounds. You turned Kavon Looney into some Ben Wallace, Dennis Rodman, the Kevin Matumbo type. Where were you on the glass, Stephen Adams? How, how did you let Kavon Looney? Kavon Looney has never had a 20-rebound game in his NBA career. That's the least shocking stat I'll probably ever provide on this show. And you let Looney dominate on the glass the one time he finally got a chance to play more than three gratuitous minutes at the beginning of the game. So Golden State wins this series as they should have. And I was just happy to see a bunch of idiotic narratives get knocked down all in one single game six. Now I'll leave the fun narratives to you, but I just wanted to make sure that the narratives that were generated in the first five games of this series never, ever come back. That is my takeaway from this series. I'm enjoying these uh, don't ever say it again segments, and we might have to make this a, a full-time thing. Um, so, <laughs> so uh, you know, this series, you know, I'm going to tip my hat to myself because I called Golden State in six on our last podcast, and I also called them going to the finals. So maybe the Suns have helped me out there, and maybe Golden State will make it to the finals. If so, I'm a genius. Um but uh, no, so Memphis better without Ja. Uh, as you said, ridiculous argument. Do they get better defensively? Yes. We know Ja's not a great defender. 
there aren't many great scorers who are great defenders. The NBA is moving away from defense. Why? People want to see dunks. People want to see threes. People want to see scoring. Um, Or so says the metrics and the viewership and all that BS. I personally enjoy defense in every sport. Um, That's another conversation for another day. But is Memphis better defensively when Ja's not on the floor? Yes. Are they better overall? No. Don't get me wrong. Desmond Bain, good job for helping win a game. Uh, D'Anthony Melton showed up randomly. Tyus Jones showed up randomly. Um, you know, Jaron Jackson Jr., I, we'll get to him. Yeah, I, yeah. Um, but, no, that team is a good team. And the fact that they won 20 games without Ja when he was out in the regular season just proves how deep and how good that roster is. They were the second seed for a reason. It's not... It's not like they stumbled into the second seed, right? Like, um, but they're not better without John Morant. As you, you know, John might play out of control sometimes and might throw up a bunch of shots because he's feeling it or he thinks he's the only option, which we've talked about with Luca and what, you know, Dallas won because he decided to start facilitating a little bit more, letting other people do things. But you need John Morant, just like Dallas needs Luka Doncic, just like. The Suns needed somebody, you know. <laughs> the point guy did not show up. Um, so, yeah. So Memphis, you know, I think this is going to help them in the future. You know, I I don't play a big part of. I'm not the person who's like you have to get your bumps and scars in the play. I, like, I don't agree with all that, but I do agree with you need experience, right? Like, and you can see that for a lot of teams. You know, it was hard. It was hard for Boston to close out Milwaukee, which we'll get to. Um, you know, you need that experience. Though. You need the experience of getting somewhere, understanding what it needs to take to close someone out. I think Golden State, um, I think they hadn't been in the playoffs in two years. You could tell in the first series when they were trying to close out, you know, it kind of looked like they were like, what do we do here against Denver? Um, they figured it out, and they closed out that series. So uh, Golden State in six, I called that. Uh, game six, Clay is still alive. I don't care what anyone else says. Clay Thompson, game six. Uh, I think he believes it too, because the way he came out in game six, he was hyped. He was like, I'm shooting everything. If it touches my hands, I'm shooting it. Um, so I think he believes it. Um, he will always go down for that. I don't care what happens in any other game six or any game six before or after. But the Oklahoma City Thunder Series, yes. that game six, will always be one of the greatest playoff performances I've ever seen from one individual person. That you don't, it wasn't LeBron, it wasn't Kobe, it wasn't Michael Jordan, it wasn't Shaq, it wasn't, you know, one of these guys that you were expecting it to, KD, it wasn't one of those guys you're expecting it to come from. And out of nowhere, Clay Thompson just put Golden State on his back. It was a, it was it was amazing. So, game six, Clay. I'm glad we got to see you. You seem like you're getting healthier again, which is awesome that you get to see a healthy Clay Thompson. We haven't seen that in two years. Um, when he was healthy, again, I think Steph is the greatest shooter we've ever seen. Clay Thompson is number two right behind him. Um, Clay might be a better catch and shoot than Steph is, um, and that's not taking anything away from Steph. Obviously, he's the greatest three point shooter we've ever seen, but. Clay might be the greatest catch and shoot shooter we've ever seen in the NBA. 
and he was a hell of a defender before he got injured. Now, obviously, it looks like he's lost a step, um, but Clay Thompson was the best 3 and D player in the league until his injury. Um, so I'm happy to see Clay getting healthy again. I feel like people disrespect that man just because he plays with Steph, and obviously he's the one that had to take a back seat when KD got there. Um, and then, you know... But Golden State, cool to see them in a Western Conference Finals again. Uh, we'll get into our, our predictions uh, here after the recap. Uh, Memphis, I think they sh- they played really well. Um, they did as best they could without John Morant, right? Uh, there's a lot of talk around the Jordan Poole knee grab. Did he purposely injure John Morant? Um, you know, if you watch it in real time and not in the breakdown of 0.1 milliseconds per frame, his ring finger and middle finger grab his knee. I think a lot of people just want to create these narratives to try to create rivalries and stuff. Um, you know, I don't think I've never seen anything from Michigan or his time in the NBA to think he's a dirty player. Um, if he did grab his knee on purpose, then yeah, he's a dick. But you know, I didn't see anything in that play that warrants me to say he purposely injured that man. Injuries suck. Injuries happen. Ask the Bucks. I guarantee you they want Middleton. Couldn't have him. So, you know, it sucks, you know, um, but it happens. That's the NBA. How many people get injured? Look at Anthony Davis. Gets injured all the time. Mr. Glass. And everyone wants to say that's cost the Lakers all these championship runs and playoff runs and stuff, and maybe it did. When AD's healthy and playing, he is a top five player in the NBA. But you have to be available for your team. You have to be on the court to play to be a top five player. So, you know, it sucks. Injuries happen, but it is what it is. And, you know, I'm not going to put Memphis down too much. It was a very competitive series when they were fully healthy. Um, again, Jaron Jackson Jr., just like I said to DeAndre Ayton, get your ass in the block, put a hand up, and go to work. There's no one on Golden State that should be able to cover him. I also don't know why Memphis got rid of Jonas Valanciunas. I, he seemed to compliment John Morant very well when they were there together. That is a move I don't understand that they decided, like, let's get Steven Adams in. For, for I've un- Many teams have moved on from Jonas Valanciunas, and I don't understand why. I, he will get you 20 and 10. He will get you 20 and 15, as he's proven with Toronto, with Memphis, with New Orleans. And it seems like every team that he goes to, they're just like, Cool, thanks. See ya. I just I don't get it, but um, the post game is starting to leave the NBA, and it makes me sad because if I was seven foot tall, if you were seven foot tall, if anyone's seven foot tall, six ten, six eleven, six, you know, you're getting a call from the NBA, even if you've never played basketball. Like mm-hmm. that's just what's that's what's going to happen. Look at Joel Embiid, right? Like, guy didn't play basketball in high school. Guy, they were just like, oh, hey, do you want to try and play some basketball? And then, like, look what he did. He turned into one of the best players in the NBA. So if you're tall and, you, and you're athletic, you know, actually, you don't even have to be athletic. If you're just tall, look at Boban Marjan. Boban got into the game, game seven, baby. But look at Boban. That guy, that guy can't do anything. It, he looked like he was about to break his back last night. But he's 7'7", so he's in the NBA. So... That's my guy, though. Um, I'm just saying, if you're tall, you get called to the NBA because you're supposed to be able to go to work in the post. As you said, Jaron Jackson does not... He has post moves. Aiton has post moves. I just don't understand 
Tim Duncan is rolling over in his grave. If seeing these guys not going to work in the post, you know, like Shaq is probably sitting there like, what is going on? Right? Like David Robinson, Hakeem Olajuwon, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, all these guys who made a living in the post, giving you 30 points a game, 28 points a game. I just, I don't get it. I just don't, I, it baffles me. I really don't understand. Like, I get it. A three-pointer is three points. The analytics say it's better than a two-pointer. You shoot the same percentage, blah, 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 blah. I don't care. Get an easy basket. Put some pressure on the other team. If you go, basketball is all about runs. There will always be a run in the game of basketball, unless you're the Phoenix Suns in game seven. There will always be a run in the game of basketball, right? If you've ever played basketball, if you've ever watched basketball, even if you're up by 20, you know the other team is going to make a run. Can they sustain it to win the game? Probably not. But they're going to make a run. They're going to pick up their defensive intensity. They're going to start being like, let's just chip away at this lead. Let's make some layups. Let's make some fast break points. Let's do. I just don't understand these teams. You're fighting for your playoff lives. You're trying to win a championship. And you just don't go back to the basic fundamental. I don't need to see you shooting logo three-pointers. Because you're down by 15. I don't need to see my 7 foot, 6 foot 10 big man trying to be a shooting guard. Like, great. If we're up, if it's a three-point game, like even for Giannis, he shot way more threes than I would have wanted him to. Again, I get it. The only person on his team that was trying to do anything. But, like, just get into the paint, throw a hand up, go to work. And then even if they double-team you, kick it out then. Kick it out to a guy who's going to be open now for an easy bucket or a better look than you having a contested three as a six foot ten guy. Like, I just don't understand. I'm not a fan of it. The post-game used to be a thing of beauty to watch. I mean, can you remember Yao Ming versus Shaq? Can you remember Dwight Howard? Ver- you know, when Dwight Howard was ruling the NBA for that little four- or five-year span, you know? And then you had guys, again, back to David Robinson, Hakeem Olajuwon, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, um, you know, even like Rashid Wallace, Ben Wallace. Yes, I know Rashid shot some threes here and there, but like, where do they make their money in the in the post in the paint? Like the big man, Chris Webber. Come on, Vlade Divac. Like all these guys, you we're not going to see that anymore. And it's kind of sad because like Chris Webber before the knees went great, great player to watch. You know, like that was that was a fun Kings team to watch, and. And they shot a lot of threes because they had Peja and Hito and all those guys, you know. Um, but I don't know. I just uh, maybe I'm too old school. Maybe I maybe I need to catch up to the game. I know everyone's shooting threes, but like, you know, when you don't when you don't have someone like, could you just imagine like Jokic? And I know he shoots threes, but could you just imagine like if he just stood out by the three point line and was like, "All right, this is my game now." Like, at least he even understood against Golden State. I'm going to get in the paint. I'm going to try to impose my will, right? And that's how they won a couple games in that series, even though Denver was a much worse team. They still won a couple games in the series because Golden State had no one to cover Jokic, even though I know Draymond had some good plays and crunch time, et cetera, et cetera. But, like, you, Jokic was still getting 40 points. And 30, like, I don't understand how people can say you're having a shitty game and you drop 30 points, right? Like, whatever. But get in the post, go to work. And it just, you know, that's what that's that's my little tidbit on, you know, big guys in the NBA right now. You bring up 
a good point. And, you know, I made after my own heart talking about post-play. I mean, I, I miss the Zach Randolph and Al Jefferson-type players of the world. I, I miss seeing guys use their physical advantage, use their bodies, get in the paint, get easy buckets. I get that three points is worth more than two, but two is worth a lot more than zero. And so when you watch these guys go 0 for 7 on threes or 1 for 10 on threes, at what point do you decide, maybe I should try something else? I, that shot is worth more for a reason. It's not because it's easier. It's not because it's smart. <laughs> so, you know, the inability to adjust on the fly and move away. It's one thing if you're hitting the threes and, you know, that happens sometimes in the NBA. Guys get hot, teams can get hot, and everybody's shooting threes. I understand that. But at what point do you say, no moss on the threes, let's focus on something that might actually work? Adjustments, somebody, please. Uh, to a couple of your points about the about the series, one with John Moran, you talked about how the team is better defensively without John Moran. And I think that's something that John Moran can work on. You know, there are some players, you know, somebody like Trey Young. Trey Young is never going to be a good defender by virtue of the fact that he's too small. Other guys just aren't quick enough. Or they, they, there's some athletic or physical limitation that stops them from being a great defensive player. Wingspan might be too short or something crazy like that. With Morant, all the physical ability is there. But when I watch John Morant, to me defensively, he's kind of the Trayvon Diggs of the NBA. Always chasing that highlight play instead of just playing fundamental defense. And so what happens is you get the highlights. You know, Trayvon Diggs is going to get that pick six occasionally. John Morant has had some of the most spectacular block shots this whole season. The problem is the lack of fundamentals it takes to get in those spots at some point gets exploited. So just like with Trayvon Diggs, I would say stick to your man more. Maybe you don't get 11 interceptions, but maybe you don't give up 1,000 yards. Same thing with John Morant. Just play regular straight-up defense. You might not get to pin the ball against the backboard every time. But you're good enough, you're talented enough to keep your man in front of you. There's no question about that. So tone down the highlights and just make basic routine plays that aren't going to show up in the box score. I don't see why John Morant can't make that adjustment next year. No, I so hopefully that's that. something he works on because that there's no reason that team should be better defensively with Tyus Jones or somebody than with John Morant. So I hope he works on that. And then just the other small point, again, going back to narratives that need to die, the whole uh, Jordan Poole pulling John Morant's knee, th this isn't Mortal Kombat. A knee swipe with your bare hand, with your fingertips, is not going to cause a bone bruise. You know, I, I just I just don't understand. Uh, there's, people have been watching too many movies or, or whatever the case may be. I want everybody at home who thinks that that's possible to try it on themselves. Swipe at your own knee and see if it causes you not to be able to walk. Ah, I my knee! <laughs> I can guarantee it's going to work out better for you than it just did for Patrick. <laughs> well, we, we got to stop. Jordan Poole's hands aren't that strong. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and assume that now. So 
That's one more narrative that can die along with this series. Let that go. Jordan Poole's not a dirty player. Like Patrick said, we've never seen any indication of that. And if you watch that replay and you think that's a dirty play or that's on a level with a Dylan Brooks clothesline or some of the other fouls we've seen in the series, then, then there's something wrong with you. I can't say anything other than that. Take your emotions out of it. We all hate that John Morant got hurt. We'd all love to see how this series would have turned out if he was healthy. But Jordan Poole is not the reason John Morant didn't finish that series. Stop that. All right, so hopping over to the Eastern Conference, we'll start with the one seed, the Miami Heat, the fraudulent Heat, as some people like to call them. Um, I am not one of them, unless I'm joking. But uh, So Heat, Philly, again, called that series perfectly. Uh, we called the Heat. Um, we said if Embiid came back, it'd be more competitive, which it was. Um, but, you know, the Heat pulled it out, as we both thought. So, um, you know, we pretty much had every series pegged correctly here uh, in the semis. Uh, again, besides the Suns, but we're moving on from the Suns, stupid Suns. Um, I hope that gorilla mascot drops the team and goes to work for another team, stupid Suns. Uh, so anyway, so the Heat-Philly uh, series kind of went as expected. Um, and Bede came back, gave them a boost of energy, played really well. Uh, but that fractured orbital bone and just the injuries that he had, just, you know, he couldn't sustain the adrenaline through, you know, they weren't going to win four out of five, right? You know, like they just weren't going to, they weren't going to win four out of five like Dallas did to the Phoenix Suns. It just wasn't going to happen. Miami Heat's too good of a team, could too good defensively. Uh, you know, Jimmy Butler even said in one of his press game conferences, post game conferences, um, F scoring. I just want my team to come out and play defense. I don't care about scoring. So, um, you know, when, you're, when your main guy, the heart of the team, is telling you, like, we don't need to score. We just need to play defense, get stops, we'll win the game. Um, they didn't need Kyle Lowry. You know, there's one of the guys that, you know, injuries happen, right? And, the, and But that team, again, deep enough to just step up and keep playing. And uh, Jimmy Butler does what he does in the playoffs. Here's a narrative that we're not going to kill today. Playoff Jimmy Butler is way better than regular season Jimmy Butler. Um, yes. I don't know what it is. I don't know. I mean, I do know what it is. Let's be honest. When the playoff time rolls around, you need one guy to, to step it up, right? And I think Jimmy knows that. I think in the regular season, and I think he's smart about this, he builds his team confidence up. Tyler Hero, you know, Kyle Lowry, which Lowry doesn't need it. He's been there. He's done it. But, like, bam, out of bio, you know, like – all these guys, Max freaking Struess, right? Like Gabe, Struess. Gabe Vincent, um, you know, PJ Tucker doesn't need any of that stuff. But some of these other guys who maybe don't have the experience, maybe need some of these confidence boosters. Like, I don't know where Duncan Robinson is. $90 million on the bench. You can pay me $90 million heat. I'm just saying. I'll, I'll sit on the bench to get paid. But uh, I can shoot. I used to be able to. I don't, these knees, I don't know anymore. But anyway, so uh, and Jordan Poole got my knees. um but no so uh the heat though you know proven they've proven it multiple years now and i don't know why people think they're frauds maybe it's because they're not a flashy one seed right we just talked about this the new nba is all about flash right and and the heat just are not a flashy team they're a grinded out remind me a lot of the the grind the grind the memphis grizzlies when they were like you know Conley, Gasol, Zebo, Tony Allen, like very similar. I think Jimmy Butler's better than any of those guys that were on that team, but I'm just saying very similar mentality. Um, And it reminds me a lot of that. 
Um, you know, give Spo credit. Again, we've already talked about coaching, but I give Spo credit for, you know, getting out of the shadow of the Dwayne Wade LeBron Heat teams. Um, very, very happy for him there. But uh I think I think Jimmy Butler just knows in the regular season, we'll make the playoffs. I'm gonna get these guys some confidence in themselves. So when I need it, when because he he learned in the finals against the Lakers in the bubble, right? Yes. I won one game and I scored fifty points. I can't do that. I can't. I you can't sustain that through a whole no. series. So I think he knows that he needs to build a team up in the regular season so they are ready for the playoffs. If Struess is almost getting you a triple double in a closeout game, like you've done something right. Like who thought the guy from DePaul would be getting an, almost a triple double and dropping twenty plus points in a closeout game? Uh, anyway, Heat, I like them. I'm I'm very excited for the Eastern Conference Finals. Uh, I think it's going to be a great, great matchup. But let's talk about James Harden for the Philadelphia 76ers. I know you have a lot to say about this, and I, I just want to get yeah. some points in. <laughs> Danny Green should not be the savior, along with Joel Embiid, for the 76ers. Tobias Harris, I understand he got the big contract, and they picked him over Jimmy. Well, they picked him and Ben Simmons over Jimmy. But Tobias Harris, as much as I like him as a solid basketball player, again, I don't know why people get so emotional. I'm not calling him a superstar. He is a solid basketball player. If you need him to get you 15 and 8, you know, he'll do that. He plays good defense. He can create his own shot. He can take some of the burden off of Joel Embiid. But James Harden was brought in because Ben Simmons was scared to shoot. Quote, unquote. Ben Simmons was scared to take a shot. To me, Ben Simmons is one of the greatest defenders in the NBA. I don't think people realize how much his defense helped the 76ers win a lot of series while he was there. Absolutely. Is he a great scorer? No. Did anyone think he was a great scorer? Though? Was that his billing coming into the NBA? Ben Simmons is going to drop 30 points per game. No, no one has ever said that. I don't know where people come up with these narratives in their mind. I don't know why people think certain players need to be Kobe or need to be Michael Jordan when it comes to the playoffs. Like, I don't – we got to stop comparing everybody to Michael Jordan. Like, it's it's insane. It's blasphemous, as you said. Like, I don't understand where this narrative came from where everyone has to be Michael Jordan. People, no one else is ever going to be Michael Jordan. If Kobe Bryant was the closest thing we could get to another Michael Jordan, and he, in my opinion, is still far below Michael Jordan as a basketball player, we're not getting another Michael Jordan, okay? So let's just stop saying everyone has to be Michael or Kobe in the playoffs. Ben Simmons did his job in the playoffs, yes. Did he pass on an open layup? Yes. Did they lose to the Hawks? Yes. But was Trey Young struggling that series? Yes. The Hawks, like, you're talking about a guy who, the ice-cold Trey, guy's dropping 30 points a game as a point guard. He's the next Steph Curry. Does anyone remember what happened to him in that series? Like, Ben Simmons was locking these guys up. When James Harden was dropping 35 points per game, Ben Simmons was locking them up. Like, I just don't understand where, again, I know people don't like defense, and it's all about scoring. If you don't score in the NBA, you suck. That's, for some reason, that those are the narratives now. Um... But anyway, James Harden was brought in 
to not be Ben Simmons. And you want to know how many shots he took in the second half of a closeout game where if you lose, you're going home? Two. You know how many he made? Zero. You know how many Ben Simmons? You want to know how many points Ben Simmons scored that game in the second half? Zero. Why? Because he was sitting at home not playing. So for all these people who are like, James Harden's coming in because Ben Simmons sucks, blah, 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 blah. Same fans who probably wanted Jimmy Butler out of Philadelphia because fans are dumb. You got what you wanted. You got another quote-unquote superstar to come in, and he doesn't play as good as defense, isn't as good of a facilitator, and you still lost the series. You're not going to the finals. You're not even going to the Eastern Conference finals, and you didn't win MVP. So, to me, this this season is a failure for the 76ers. Um, Maxi showed out. That's great. I think he had a great year. I think that's a great building block for the future. I personally would move on from James Harden. His fall from mega superstar to mediocre role player, essentially, is that's how he played. Again, that's how he played. I'm just going off of how he played. And I don't think he's a max deal. Like everyone, you know, Aiton, I don't think he's getting a max deal now after his playoff performance. Harden, I think, lost money in his playoff performance. And if he does get a max deal, I think it's going to hurt players in the future because you can't play that way and still get paid. Like, it's just, I don't know. You know, James Harden, to me, I just as bad as Chris Paul, right? He's been in the playoffs, as he said in his postgame conference, 13 years. And he sniffed the finals once as a sixth man for the Oklahoma City Thunder. Mm -hmm. I just, you know, some players are built with it. And some aren't. Some guys have that killer instinct when it comes playoff time. Like, I'm going to get this done, right? I will say that about Kobe. Kobe had that instinct in him. If he was in the playoffs, he would shoot 70 times <laughs> before he lost. Because he would know, like, it's on me. Like, if we're going to lose this game, I'm losing going out my way, right? I can't imagine Kobe shooting two shots and a half in a closeout game. I can't even imagine Dwight Howard shooting two when he was with the Magic. That's what I'm saying. Like, if you're the leader of a team, and I understand Joel Embiid was back, but you could tell he was not 100%. If you're the leader of a team, you need to shoot more than two shots and then say, we were running the offense. You're, ja you're James Mother effing Harden. You led the league in scoring like four straight years or something stupid. Like... I just don't get it. I really don't. I don't. I'm, assu I'm assuming he's going to be back with Philly next year. I don't know if that's the right fit for me personally. I, you know, I might, I might try and package him and Tobias Harris or something somewhere. I mean, that's a lot of money in a contract, so I don't think it's even possible. But if I'm Philly, I might be blowing it up and trying to move on come next year because there's a lot of teams coming in the Eastern Conference. The Eastern Conference isn't going to get easier. And Milwaukee will be back. Boston is going to be back. Miami most likely will be back. And I don't see their current roster beating that those three teams. Yeah. Personally. So, 
That's all I got to say about that series. Congratulations to the Heat. I'm really excited about the Eastern Conference Finals. All right, just a couple of quick points. I'll, I'll touch on Ben Simmons just for a second, just because, you know, since he didn't want to show up this year, I don't want to give him but so much time. But Ben Simmons is in that same category for me personally as far as players who need to get their behinds in the paint and post up. Ben Simmons has an outstanding post game. Can finish with both hands. Excellent around the rim. He either can't or won't shoot from the perimeter. So why not? Ben Simmons is not a point guard. And I'll say that anytime I get the chance to. He is not a point guard. He is a power forward who can handle the ball in transition and pass. That is not a point guard. Get in the paint. Put your back to the basket. And take shots from your comfort zone. It's that simple. He literally can only do halfback dive. (laughs) <laughs> and that's fine if you just stick to it but at least do that much <laughs> if you're a halfback dive pro don't sit here and try to run nine routes all day <laughs> just stick with the halfback dive <laughs> but also you, know, you bring up a good point and I, I do want to reiterate that you know let, let, let's stop comparing guys to Jordan or comparing guys to LeBron or comparing guys to Kobe the next this the next that it never works out Ben Simmons is not the next LeBron. Devin Booker is not the next Kobe Bryant. And it's okay. You can be a great player and not be one of them. But let's 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 stop with those comparisons. I'm already starting to hear the, the Luka is having the LeBron run. Let, let, let's pump the brakes on this stuff. Let's let these guys be their own guys. With Jordan, LeBron, probably the two greatest players, you know, of all time. Certainly the two best I've seen. They, they're the two best for a reason. Let, let them be their own guys. You know, I remember years ago, people were trying to make Brandon Ingram the next Kevin Durant. Stop this. (laughs) Let these guys develop into their own identities. Because when you start comparing these guys to all-time greats, they they have almost no chance of living up to it, and then you don't appreciate the player that they are. So let's leave all that alone. Okay, now with that out the way, let's, let's start to get into this series some. This series made me happy. Because I am a Jimmy Butler fan. And I will I will admit openly who I'm a fan of. Now, again, I'll keep it unbiased on this show, but I will tell you who I'm a fan of. And Jimmy Butler is right up there with Russell Westbrook as two of my favorite players in the league because of their mentality, because of no nights off, because of, you know, we are going to give our all no matter what. Just, just having that competitive fire to that degree in an era where guys want to load, manage, and take games off, or in the case of Ben Simmons, take seasons off, you got guys who actually want to show up and earn their paycheck every night, and those guys are the ones that I keep close to my heart. So that's why I'm a Jimmy Butler fan. So I'm always excited when Jimmy Butler, who I thought was notoriously underrated year after year, the same impact that Chris Paul allegedly has on every team he goes to, Jimmy Butler's the same thing. Jimmy Butler's been to the playoffs everywhere he's gone. So he, to me, why is he not the small forward guy? I mean, come on. <laughs> so if that's all it takes to get that title. But Jimmy Butler in this series, you know, not a known scorer, a guy who's shown the ability to do it from time to time. But, you know, when you think of best scores in the game, it's a while before you get to Jimmy Butler. Butler went out and scored 30 points or more in three of the last four games of this series in mostly efficient fashion. Now, game six, he took 29 shots. That was out of the norm for him. He's not normally that guy. But game six, there was a message. As you said, he he is well aware of who the Sixers chose over him. And he wanted to remind them why he shouldn't have done that. 
So once he felt the competitive will of the Sixers go away, oh, yeah, he was going to jack up his shots. So he did kind of change it up for game six. But games three through five in particular, he was very organic with his efficient, effective scoring. And I just love the way he played in this series. And another thing that's going to be interesting to keep your eye on moving forward, in the last three games of the series, Jimmy Butler made multiple threes in each game. Now, that's not normally a big deal. But for a player like Jimmy Butler, Jimmy Butler, this is the first time all season Jimmy Butler had three games in a row with multiple threes. Since coming to Miami, I don't know what happened to his perimeter shot because it used to be a decent three-point shooter. Since coming to Miami, Jimmy Butler has been under 25% from three-point range for three straight years. So for him to find the three-point range all of a sudden the last three games into the series, if he can keep any of that going forward. Now, I don't want to see Jimmy Butler become that guy to start taking 10 or 12 threes. Let's not overcompensate here. But if he can add the occasional three to what he's already doing, then I really like their chances going forward. So I want to keep an eye on that. But that was a positive development, one that I wanted to see. Another thing I want to talk about in this series, and again, we're talking about narratives I'm trying to get rid of. One of the narratives I'm trying to get rid of is this whole injuries aren't an excuse. I'm tired of hearing that. You know, it's one thing for people to, to choke or this and that. It happens. But when you have known injuries, you can't expect these players to do more than their body's going to allow them to do. When the Heat started losing games in this series, two things happened. One, Joel Embiid did come back. But the other, Kyle Lowry was in the mix. Kyle Lowry is dealing with some type of hamstring injury that is not healing. It has not been right for a long time. And when the Heat brought Lowry back, he was terrible on both ends of the court. And you can see that he couldn't move. I have no idea. Whoever cleared Kyle Lowry probably should be fired before the Eastern Conference Finals because he couldn't move at all. And to sit there and say, well, he's suited up, no excuses, and you go out there and try to play with one hamstring. <laughs> These guys are already playing against the best players in the world, and you want guys on one leg to compete? No. So I'm not going to hold it against Kyle Lowry. And Kyle Lowry, we know he's had his share of choke jobs in the playoffs. We, we've seen him they'll leave games because he was, you know, getting anxious during the playoffs. So I'm not here to defend him as the most clutch player ever or anything. But, yeah, I'm going to give Kyle Lowry a, quote, pass in this series because he's hurt. It's, it's stupid to try to judge a player while they're hurt. And then you know it's hurt. It's not like they made up an injury after the fact. He went in with a hamstring issue. And it's been ongoing. So, so let's stop that. And even with Joel Embiid, Joel Embiid did not have his best series. He still made enough of a difference because I still believe in my mind had he not come back at all, this would have been a sweep. But Embiid didn't play his best basketball, shot some low percentages. But did you see how hurt that man was? This man got the basketball pushed into his face. Not a fist, not an elbow, not a knee. The basketball got pushed into his face. And that was enough to knock him to the ground and keep him down for a couple of minutes. Roll, literally rolling around in pain on the ground. In addition to a torn ligament in his thumb, in addition to some knee issue he had, and you say, I'm supposed to hold him to the same standards I would if he was healthy? Now, we can have a separate discussion about Embiid's durability, 
We can have a discussion about that and why that's the concerning thing moving forward. I have no problem having that discussion. But to try to hold Embiid accountable and say, well, he, he was out there. He, we should hold him to MVP standards like he played like all year. No, no, I'm not doing that. It's another one that probably shouldn't have been cleared at all. That was a desperation move. It got him a couple of wins. But you know, let's, let's, let's chill on when you know a guy is legitimately injured. And there's a difference between being injured and hurt. When a guy's got ligament damage, facial damage, concussions, this man couldn't see his phone a couple weeks ago. Let's relax on trying to hold that player to their normal standard. Now, with all that out the way, I get to save the worst for last. Mr. Beard, James Harden. I talked about him last episode and him not showing up in Joel Embiid's absence, not stepping up the way a star is supposed to, the way a guy who has talked his way out of two organizations in the last couple of years is supposed to step up when you get everything you want. In game four, James Harden returned. We saw vintage Harden, as JR would say. 31 points, seven rebounds, nine assists. I'm like, okay, James Harden, is he back? Maybe, finally. Welcome to the party, hopefully. And what did you do after that? Two more games, season on the line. You're back in the series, so you have no reason to quit. Game five and six combined, 25 points. I, I didn't say 25 points per. 25 points total in games five and six. You just scored 31. We know it's in you. Give us 31 more and 31 more after that. That's what you're getting paid for. But no, you don't do it. And you touched on James Harden. Second half of game six, your season's on the line. This is your last chance to play this year. In front of your home fans, you should be pumped at something. Not only do you go 0 for 2 and turn the ball over three times, how, how, how do you have more turnovers than field goal attempts? Nobody has that ratio before, a field goal attempt to turnover ratio. You sucked in that. <laughs> had, I mean, you are creating stats to be garbage in. Not only that, the second shot that James Harden shot in that second half was with a minute and a half left in the game. So I'm not even giving you credit for that shot because that was a, a bogus shot when you already saw whoever was subbing in for you checking in at the, at, you know, the scorer's table. You took one shot in the second half. That really counted. And not only that, the first minute of the second half, again, season on the line, the first minute of the second half, what do you do? Turn the ball over and commit a foul. Thanks. Which team are you playing for? You know, there was rumors you were going to go to Miami. Maybe you thought you did. Because you helped them a whole lot more than you helped the Sixers in the series. To see James Harden turn into Rajon Rondo. And I don't mean playoff Rondo. He turned into November Rondo. The guy who you forget what team he's on every year. That's the player you turned into in the playoffs. James Harden has a $47 million player option next year. If I was him, I would have already opted in. 
because nobody in their right mind would pay him that money. I wouldn't pay him half that money. I would pay him Rajon Rondo money because he's playing like that. So he better take that money because he sure hasn't earned it. I'd be hoping he declines it if I'm Philadelphia. And if he, if he, if he had the nerve, if he had the unmitigated goal to play like that and then decline that option, I don't think I'd sign him at all. I don't know if I'd sign him for the minimum because I'm that pissed with him. And maybe for the Sixers moving forward, let's just avoid all left-handed shooters. Let's just try that because it's not going well for you when you bring one in. So Philadelphia, another team that had a disappointing end, not as surprising as Phoenix, of course, but disappointing nonetheless. Take their lumps. Hopefully Embiid gets healthy, but outside of Embiid and Tyrese Maxey, I got to give him credit because he was the one guy the whole series who, if nothing else, seemed like he cared. So you got a couple of pieces there, but if James Harden handcuffs this franchise, I'm with you. They're not competing in the East. They can forget it. All right, so with that said, we got that series out the way. We'll go to the last series, the, as far as I'm concerned, best series of the semis, conference semis, and that's the uh, Celtics and the Bucks. Uh, this is a series that I thought Boston would win. I thought it would be close competitive, but I thought in the end the absence of Chris Middleton would be the difference. And, you know, I want to start this off by giving Giannis Antetokounmpo all the credit in the world. This series, as far as I'm concerned, should not have been quite this competitive without Chris Middleton. And for six games, you almost forgot Middleton wasn't out there. That speaks to a level of greatness even in defeat. So I want to give Giannis that credit. Game seven, it was obvious. They needed Middleton badly in game seven. But games one through six, Giannis kept him in there and stole some games. And so I have to give him that credit. With that said, I also want to give credit to the Boston Celtics defense. I said this stat in the last podcast episode. Giannis Antetokounmpo for each of the last four seasons, that's a huge sample size, has shot over 55, 55% from the field. In this series, the Boston Celtics, and again, some of this was, you know, no Middleton to help ease some of the pressure. But in this series, the Celtics held onto the Kubo under 50%, let alone 55, under 50% in five out of the seven games. Go ahead and try to find another stretch of seven games where Giannis was under 50% from the field five times. I'll wait. The number one reason I picked Boston to win this series, even more so than Middleton's absence, even though Middleton's absence put me over the top to Boston side, was Boston has been such a good defensive team. And we talked about this earlier in the show where defense is disappearing from the NBA. Disappearing from sports in a lot of ways because of these rules changes. The Celtics have found a way to dial in and play the kind of defense we're just not used to seeing anymore. And the fact that they were able to do that to Giannis, make him not inefficient, but certainly less efficient than we're used to seeing. And actually inefficient in game seven. I just want to make sure the Celtics get all their credit. 
And I don't know how many best players in the world Boston has to beat before the narrative becomes about Boston. Because it seemed like, you know, Boston won in the first round. And, you know, the thing was, going into the playoffs, the narrative was, you know, everybody knew that the Nets would probably end up the seventh seed. You know, there was questions about what would happen in the play-in. But we thought the Nets would win in the play-in and get that seventh seed. All the conversation was about who was ducking the Nets. You know, Bucks losing at the end of the season without playing their key players. Sixers losing at the end of the season without their key players. I'm not so sure they were trying to duck the Nets. Because all year long, we knew the Nets didn't play defense. We knew the Nets didn't have any cohesiveness. The Nets were the seventh seed. I, I, I don't know why you would duck them. I think, and this is just me personally, I think teams are trying to duck Boston in the second round. I think that's what they were ducking. But the narrative's always been about somebody else. Boston swept Brooklyn, and the narrative was more about Brooklyn. The team that got swept. AD didn't do this. Kyrie didn't do that. And they didn't do this, and they didn't do that. But Boston should have got credit. Because with all that, Boston could have easily lost the first game of that series. They, they took that. That had nothing to do with Katie and Kyrie not showing up. That had to do with Jason Tatum making a spectacular play at the end. Brooklyn fell asleep at the end, but give Boston credit for stealing that game. And then Boston, you know, forced their will on Brooklyn the rest of the series. But everything was just about, oh, Brooklyn this, and Brooklyn's a failure, and Brooklyn's a disappointment. So now you get into this series, and, you know, Giannis won't ever have whatever happened to KD. Giannis is not going to let that happen to him. It kind of did happen to him. The only difference is now Giannis kept his aggression going. And, again, that's why I give him credit for it. But Giannis, his field goal percentage fell off just like Durant's did. And at some point, we got to start looking at the common denominator here and say, that Boston defense is no joke. We talked about how Drew Holiday had to step up offensively in this series. Patrick said, now I'm going to steal Patrick's quote. He, he said, we need to see Northern Pelicans, Drew Holiday. And I love, again, speaking of defense, I love that Drew Holiday won a game in this series with defense. Uh, stealing the block right at the end of the game when they when they needed it. That, that wasn't the that wasn't, you know, just icing on the cake. They needed those plays. So major props to Drew Holiday for, you know, winning game five with defense. But Holiday knew he had to step up in the absence of Chris Middleton offensively. We know he can defend. But then during the season, Holiday shot 14 field goal attempts a game. In this series, that jumped up to 22 shots a game. So easy math, that's more than a 50% increase. He tried. But Drew Holiday, a guy who, even for a guard, usually hits around half his shots from the field, was all the way down to 36% from the field in this series. Again, that Boston defense forces you to take shots you don't want and finds a way to contest. Almost all the defenders on Boston can switch, guard multiple players. Their best players are locked in defensively. And that showed as much as anything in this series. So I love that that happened. And I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm focusing on defense. I'm, I'm going to leave the Grant Williams story to Patrick that they really just couldn't get anybody else going. They had a bunch of guys who are X-factors offensively. 
Brooke Lopez can score sometimes. Bobby Portis can score sometimes. Pat Connaughton can score sometimes. Grayson Allen, America's favorite player, can score sometimes. Uh... <laughs> and they could just never get those guys going. You know, it might be Pat Connaughton for a half, Brooke Lopez for a half, but they, they couldn't get the other guys consistently going one game to the next, one quarter to the next. And they, they really needed one guy or two guys or three guys to consistently step up in Middleton's absence. And it just didn't happen for the role players this year. So that part's a little disappointing. Uh, you can see it took a toll on Giannis. Giannis was one for 10 in contest, contested shots in the second half of game seven. That that just doesn't happen. Even with great defense, that doesn't happen to Giannis on Kumbo. But, you know, the series took its toll and it finally... Finally kind of broke him down a little bit at the end. If you saw how he checked out at the end of that game, I've never seen Antetokounmpo look that exhausted. This is a guy that does not run out of gas. <laughs> this is a guy that can play 48 minutes running full speed up and down the court with no problem. He was gassed. And, you know, again, it just came to how much of a burden was on him in this series and how unbalanced this offense had to become after it's been, it's been Giannis in a fairly balanced attack before. So it's unfortunate to see that Milwaukee had to go that route. But uh, again, I just want to acknowledge great series. It was lovely to see one series, at least, where nobody gave up. So that was nice to see. Competitive series, great series. And I, I am super excited for the Eastern Conference Finals. And, you know, I'll leave those thoughts for, you know, in a minute. But great series, great series. Wish we could have seen it at full strength, but uh, yeah, yeah, this was the one here. Yeah, so as Julius and I discussed uh, before we started recording this uh, podcast, uh, we're going to save the best for last, and this series lived up to all the hype we were talking about, you know, on our last episode, um, and the Milwaukee Bucks went out like defending champions, right? Like, I picked them in six, and Julius got it right on the head. He said Boston in seven. Um, and the only reason I picked them in six was for Milwaukee to win this series. I was like, it cannot go back to Boston for a game seven, even though in this series, they won three games on the road. Um, it, it couldn't go back to Boston though, for a game seven. I think everyone knew it. I think you could see it on Milwaukee's face after they lost game six, which every game in this series i mean you might if you're only looking at box scores you might not know it i mean there were very very close games especially game five with all the holiday heroics and all that stuff but every game in this series was competitive except for game seven at the end right that grant williams decided to become the power forward steph curry don't know why he got 18 three-pointer attempts i just it's beyond me um but uh this series was what we as basketball fans, I don't want to say deserve, but this is a series we deserved, right? After you and I were talking about it, game sevens, we got two of them. Y'all, Sunday's going to be great. Thank God this was the first game seven. <laughs> if the Dallas and Phoenix game happened first, I don't know if I would have watched that. No, I would have watched it, but I'm just saying like, oh my goodness, like, but this series had everything. Um, you had, you know, someone that people consider a superstar, you know, actually being a superstar in Giannis. 
he's the most unstoppable force I think we've seen in the league since Shaq. Um, maybe prime Dwight Howard, but even that fizzled out after two or three years. Like Giannis has been going on for multiple years now, just like Shaq. Um, and and credit to Giannis for never giving up. This literally became Giannis and the others versus the Boston Celtics. We talked about this in our last podcast. Um, I said whoever won this series, I think, is going to the finals out of the East. I still believe that. Um, I, I get, again, tip of the hat to, to Milwaukee for fighting hard. Literally none of the other role players showed up. Drew Holiday, I needed 25 points out of him per game for them to win this series. He didn't. He was terrible on the offensive end, which we already know his defense. He's probably one of the best perimeter defenders in the game. He has been for a long, long time. With Milton out and going up against, as we discussed in our last episode, Boston's been the best team in the league since Christmas. And if you don't want to say Christmas, you can say New Year's. They've been the best team in the NBA like you said, we don't know what happened with Jalen Brown and Tatum and all those guys where it clicked and they, they've become a well-oiled machine. Everyone knows their roles. And again, Grant Williams can come out and win a game seven for you. That's just how deep this team is. Like he's like the seventh option on that team. Okay. He's probably like the sixth, but like you're thinking Tatum Brown, smart Horford, right? Those are your top four options, probably in that order. And then you can kind of argue who over who the fifth option is, right? Is it Grant Williams off the bench? Is it White? You know, it's definitely not Pritchard, and he came in and got you four threes. So it's just, you know, it's crazy um, just how deep the Celtics team is. Um, shout out to the coach. Again, I know we didn't we talked about coaching, but all I heard was about Mike Budenholzer and all of his, what is he going to do? Well, you don't hear about the Celtics coach at all. I can't even tell you the last time – I even heard his name pronounced. Which, by the way, is Ime Yudoka. Which is... Which is sad in itself. Draymond Green touched on it a little bit in a tweet about how black coaches are overlooked in the NBA um, from just a media perspective. And and Boston being one of the greatest franchises in NBA history, I believe they just said that this is their 35th Eastern Conference Finals appearance, which is they've they've been in half of them. Half of the Eastern Conference Finals. If Brad Stevens was that coach, I guarantee you we'd hear nonstop about how great Brad Stevens is and the adjustments he made and look what he did to win Game 7. If I didn't follow the NBA, I wouldn't even be able to tell you the coach's name for the Celtics. I bet you half the people listening right now don't know his name. (laughs) And that's sad. That's sad to me. Um, But anyway, moving on from that point, uh, the Celtics... You know, after blowing the 14-point lead, I thought maybe, maybe they might not come back from that. And they sure enough did. Uh, Their defense is amazing. They play team ball. Uh, The the thing I don't like about watching Boston play, though, is, and this is with a lot of players, I didn't like Embiid flopping around on the floor. Why is Marcus Smart always on the ground after every defensive series? I'm not talking about being hurt. I'm talking about this man is on the ground. And, you know, maybe it's just for me, aesthetically. 
I hate watching this. He tries to take a charge, it feels like. If he's not getting a steal or if he's not contesting your shot, he's trying to take a charge from you. This man is on the ground after every defensive play. It's, it's annoying. I get annoyed by it. But, hey, he's the defensive player of the year. Give that man the credit. Uh, he deserves because Kimball Walker and Kyrie Irving did not work out as the point guards for that team. We talk about that a lot. Um, so again, shout out to him for, you know, making that team run and, and he's aggressive. I I like when Marcus Smart comes out aggressive, um, you know, after turning the ball over and losing game five in game six, he came out and no one else had four or five points. He had 17, he had 17 points. He got, he got that team going in game six, um, which they needed it. Uh, so, you know, Again, that team is not a one-man team. Like, don't get me wrong. Tatum ended up showing out, dropping 40-plus, yes. 40, 40 and, and willing that team to a victory in Game 6 because Giannis is right behind them with 44. So, again, it, but it didn't all fall onto Tatum. Even though he scored 46 points, there were other guys in double-digit scoring. So it wasn't like Giannis where Giannis is dropping 44 and the next closest guy has, like, eight. You know, like, it's – the discrepancy was crazy and Grayson Allen who showed up and this is why I think the top of the Eastern Conference is so strong Grayson Allen Connaughton Bobby Portis they looked like solid role players in the Chicago series Grayson Allen was averaging like 15 points a game in that series I don't know if he's got double digits in any game this series against the Celtics I don't remember one game that he scored double digits And sometimes that's with Pritchard on him. Sometimes that's with Derek White on him. It wasn't always Marcus Smart. Marcus Smart was covering Drew. That's why Drew, like you said, he wasn't efficient. But you had the defensive player of the year covering you. Mm-hmm. Giannis, mean mugged Al Horford. And I, Al Horford decided to turn to the Atlanta Hawks, Al Horford. I don't know. He thought he was playing with Kyle Korver and Josh Smith and all them boys again. And Joe Johnson. Mm-hmm. I don't know what happened to Al Horford. Resurgence. I'm really, really excited, and we'll, this will segment into our next segment. You know, I'm excited for the Eastern Conference Finals, man. I, I'm shout out to the Celtics for winning that. That was a hell of a series, my favorite series to watch every single game in. I can't say that for all the other series. The Philly Heat series is actually really boring. Every single game was a blowout. Every game that was a W for the team was a blowout. Yeah. Not this series. This series, you wanted to watch every single game. But, listen, transitioning into the preview of the finals. We'll start with the Eastern Conference Finals since we just got done talking about the Celtics and the Bucks. Uh, we're going into the Heat versus the Celtics. And, Julius, I got to tell you, I am, I am really excited for this series. Um, two defensive teams. Two deep teams that have their. It seems like they have their playoff rotation set. Seems like we're gonna get eight man rotations. You know, maybe Duncan Robinson comes in randomly, and gives you a eight for eleven game from the three point line, and you'll never hear from him again. Um, hopefully, Robert Williams can come back for the Celtics. I think that's gonna make a big difference, especially against Bam if he doesn't come back. Um, you know, Grant Williams has been getting it done with Horford. Um, and then Thies comes in and they gave him like 10 minutes here and there. Uh, I think they're going to need Williams though. Um, 
I can see this series going seven. I really can. I just don't think the Heat have went to the finals in in the bubble, you know, and then obviously Milwaukee made it last year and won it all. Um, but the Heat's been there. They they know what to do. They know what they what needs to get done to get to the finals, right? And Jimmy Butler being Jimmy Butler, I don't think you're sweeping the Heat. I just don't think it's happening. I think the Heat are going to at least get if they don't win the series, they're going to at least get two or three wins out of the series. This game, this series is is going six or seven. Um, again, kind of like how I felt like with Milwaukee. For the Celtics to win this, I think they're going to have to win it in six. I don't think you want to go back to Miami for a game seven. It's the same way I felt about Milwaukee. That's why when I made my predictions, I said Milwaukee in six. I think you need to win it at home. Um, You know, obviously Dallas has kind of made me waver a little bit in my feelings about game sevens and, and playing at home, but... I don't know. Maybe just Phoenix isn't the city for champions because the Cardinals did not look good in the playoffs after being front runners for half the NFL season. Suns were the quote unquote best team in the NBA all year and had their hearts ripped from them in a game seven. But, um, you know, Boston in a game six being hyped, being Boston, I could see, you know, if they're, if they're up three, two, they want to close it out game six. Um, I'm going to pick Boston. I'm going to pick it in six. Um, You know, I do like Tatum-Butler matchup. I think that's going to be a really great matchup. The nice thing for Tatum, though, Jalen Brown can also cover Jimmy Butler. Marcus Smart can switch onto Butler. He can't be his primary defender because Butler is taller, and Butler is not scared to go into the paint, into the block, and go to work. But I think Brown and Tatum can switch off and on of Jimmy Butler, and so Bam's going to need to step up um, offensively. I'm not saying Bam. We know Bam's a great defender. Uh, You know, I'm sure Tatum still remembers that block from 2020 in the last ECF. Um, This is the thing. Everyone's bringing that back up, the bubble conference finals. That was two years ago. This is a completely different Jason Tatum, completely different Jalen Brown completely different Marcus Smart. And I am excited as hell to watch this Eastern Conference Finals. I think it's going to... I don't think it's going to be as good as the Milwaukee-Boston series, but I think it's going to be damn close. Um, the thing I'm worried about is if Lowry doesn't come back... Again, I know Strew stepped up in the Philly series. I don't... The Boston defense is... Philly's defense compared to Boston's defense doesn't even equate, right? Like, you can't even compare the two. Mm-hmm. I, the Heat haven't faced a defense like this in any of their matchups. They had the Hawks, and then they got the Sixers. <laughs> so, Boston has gotten the Nets overhyped, but everyone still thought they could win the championship as a seventh seed. They got the defending champs with probably the best player in the NBA right now. They beat both of them. And everyone's like, oh, they went seven. They're going to be tired. But they could be. They, they could be tired. You know, that was a physical series. I just think that Boston has more options. I think their defense is going to smother, just like what would happen with Milwaukee's role players. Grayson Allen, Bobby Portis, Pat Conton looked like world beaters in the Chicago series. They were really nowhere to be found in the Boston series. Don't get me wrong. Bobby Portis hit some 
some shots here and there. He hit a pretty big one in Game 5. Um, but Connaughton didn't show up. Grayson Allen didn't show up. And that and that's because of Boston's defense. It, it, again, so I just... Can Struess handle that defense? I don't. I don't think so. Can Can Gabe Vincent handle that? I don't. I don't think so. You know, are Bam and Jimmy going to be prepared and ready to go? I I think so. But again, this isn't the 2020 Boston Celtics. These two years of fighting and making this their team. I just think it's going to be. I'm ready for the series. I can't wait. I cannot wait for tomorrow. I'm with you 100%. You know, we've talked about it, and we'll continue to talk about it. We like defense. You know, that that might not be a fun thing to say anymore. It might not even be legal to say anymore. But I like defense. You like defense. You like defense. And so to see a conference finals matchup where both teams hang their hats on the defensive end, these are teams that can score, but they take pride at the defensive end of the floor. They've got several players on both sides who can defend multiple positions. It's just a beautiful thing for me to see. So I'm I'm happy that, you know, this might not be the, quote, sexiest conference finals of all time. It doesn't have the biggest stars in terms of who the people necessarily want to see. You know, it feels a little weird that there's, not a Giannis or a Kevin Durant or somebody like that. And, of course, you know, not LeBron James back, you know, when the Eastern Conference was the LeBron James Invitational. You don't have stars on that level in this series. Jason Tatum may, may be on his way there, but I'm not going to prematurely crown him or anybody just yet. But I like that you have kind of these blue-collar type of teams who are there. They've got some star power. Jason Tatum's an excellent player. Jimmy Butler, I've talked about it. He's one of my favorite players. He's an excellent player. So you've got guys who can be headliners. They're just not the top-tier guys. But I kind of like that. I like the fact that we're going to have a series that's going to be focused more on teams than individuals because we do not get that very often in today's NBA. So that's fun for me. My question for Miami is, you've got to deal with both Tatum and Brown. And Jimmy Butler, an excellent wing defender, but he's one guy. So whoever Butler isn't guarding, what are you going to do there? You know, we talk about somebody like Max Struess or somebody like Duncan Robinson, if he's in the rotation or guys like that. You know, if they can handle the defense that's going to be thrown on them. And I'll throw Tyler Hero in there as well. Because Tyler Hero kind of struggled. He got away with it because, you know, Philadelphia just didn't have enough heart to make him pay. But Tyler Hero was a little off in that series. We'll see if he can bounce back. Certainly he's got that, you know, Dylan Brooks-type confidence. But, you know, we'll see if that equates to the shot starting to fall. But you have these guys. And even Victor Oladipo coming off of serious injuries. Can these guys defend whoever Jimmy Butler isn't defending? That's my number one question for the Heat. Can can they maintain solid defense? How do they how do they use their personnel? And I think they will come up with a plan, but how do they use their personnel to slow down Tatum and Brown at the same time? Especially if they those two find a way to start going off at the same time, which again the second half of the season they started 
kind of figuring out what they want to do there. So that'll be interesting for me to watch. On the Boston side, my concern is their ability to close out games. They closed out game seven, but game seven never got close against Milwaukee. If the games are close, what happens? Game three was close against Milwaukee. They lost. Game five was close against Milwaukee. They lost. In both cases, for reasons I can't understand, Marcus Smart had the ball at the end of the game. Marcus Smart had to intentionally miss the free throw at the end of game three. Marcus Smart was the one that got blocked by Drew Holiday and got the ball stolen from Drew Holiday and even tried to flop on offense. Talk about his defensive flops. He's flopping on offense. Why? There's a team with Jason Tatum, a guy who we've talked about. You, you said he's, he's scored 46 points with the season on the line. We know he can play. He can handle the ball. He had, I think, eight assists in game seven. Most of them in the second half when guys were hitting those perimeter threes. Jason Tatum was the driving kick guy. You have Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, both wing players with excellent size, ball handlers, playmakers. Why is the ball in Marcus Smart's hands at the end of the game? I just have a concern with why that happened multiple times. I can see it happening once. Why that happened twice, I don't know. And so I do have a bit of concern there about closing them games out because I thought in you could make a case in six out of the seven games, the Celtics outplayed the Bucks and the Bucks just took two. And so I don't know if you get away with that against Miami. I, I know who Miami is going to in the clutch. Boston, I know who they should go to, but will they? So I have those concerns about both teams, but concerns in a good way in the sense that it just adds to the intrigue of the series. I think this is just such a close competitive series. I want to see it go seven games. I'm going to pick the Celtics. I'm going to stick with that pick. Again, I've just seen them be too good for too long. You know, I want Miami to get their due because it seems like they never do. seems like Miami's always overlooked team now. I don't even know if people remember that they're the number one seed in the East. <laughs> so I want to give them their flowers. Miami's an excellent basketball team. Jimmy Butler's my guy. They, Bam Adebayo is a defensive player of the year candidate every year. He's going to present problems if Robert Williams can't get back, as you said. They got away without Robert Williams in the last series because somebody like Brooke Lopez just doesn't have the athleticism to take advantage of you know, a Daniel Tice or somebody like that. You can't really get away with putting Daniel Tice on Bam Adebayo. So Robert Williams' presence is going to be needed in this series, in my opinion, uh, more than it was the last series. But So I just want to give Adebayo his credit because he's overlooked. A defensive player of the year candidate. And when, once you take away, Jokic might be the best big man passer in the league. So there's just a lot to like about his game. But I'm still going to go with Boston. I'm going to trust that Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown have this thing figured out enough where they're not getting into that mode where they go, my turn, your turn, my turn, your turn. They, they get into the mode where we can pick these guys apart together at the same time. We can both have big halves in the same half. We can both have big games in the same game. 
if they can get, figure out that balance the way they did for the majority of the second half of the season, and they can take advantage, especially whoever Butler is not on, can take advantage of their matchup. I think that's what puts the Celtics over the top. I picked the Celtics to go to the finals last week on that episode. I'm going to stick with that prediction. I am going to go with the semi-slightly mild prediction. I won't call it bold, a mild prediction that Boston will go into Miami and win game seven on the road. And that will put the Celtics into the NBA finals. All right, so now we're going to transition back to the Western Conference, get back to where we started. We are at a point now where we have the Golden State Warriors and the Dallas Mavericks. And, you know, this is a series that, quite frankly, I didn't see coming because I didn't expect Dallas to be here. But they are here. Golden State got away with being the three seed. This is a team that needed to take games off in the regular season because of injury situations, guys coming back, uh, guys getting hurt. It seemed like when one got back out of their big three, another one went down. So, you know, they end up the three seed, even though they probably weren't the third best team out West. But that doesn't come back to bite them. Now Golden State gets home court advantage that I didn't think they'd have in the conference finals. I think that makes things interesting. Um, I think this is a series where Andrew Wiggins is a guy that needs to kind of earn his way. All postseason long, when we talk about the Warriors, it's been about splash triplets. You know, it's been about Stephen Curry, it's been about Klay Thompson, and it's been about the adopted splash brother in Jordan Poole. And then it's been about Draymond Green, and whether it's about his defense, about his interactions with the fans, whether about the fouls he commits, whatever the case, Draymond Green seems to find a way to be part of the headlines, even if it's just, you know, him going back and forth with Kendrick Perkins. He seems to always be in the headlines. Andrew Wiggins is the guy that no one discusses. And let's not forget, Andrew Wiggins was an all-star starter this year. Now, that leads me to a whole separate conversation that I won't get into right now, but fan voting needs to be banned from the All-Star game. I just want to say that now. Fan voting needs to be banned. Not count for half, not count for 25%, banned entirely. That said, people somewhere out there in that universe voted Andrew Wiggins to be an All-Star starter this year. Can you show up? And I don't even mean on the offensive end. You know, you got three shooters who are going to take a bunch of shots in this series. So I don't, I'm not here to say Wiggins needs to score 25 a game like, like you need the holiday to do in the last round. What I need Andrew Wiggins to do is play solid offense, hit a few shots, but I need him to take on the challenge of Luka Doncic. That's the number one thing I want to see from Andrew Wiggins. Earn your keep somehow. Do something to justify your status. You are a former number one overall pick. And it's like people forgot that. You are an all-star starter this year for reasons I can't understand, but you are. You're getting paid pretty well. Do something to justify that status. And I want to see you do it on the defensive end. I'm not saying anything crazy. I'm not saying, you know, hold Luka under 20 points a game or something crazy. No, that's not going to happen. But the same way the Celtics made Giannis work, the same way the Celtics kept Giannis way below his normal field goal percentage, that's what I want to see Wiggins do as the primary defender. 
Because Golden State's going to need to score in this series. So they can't just throw Draymond Green on them the whole series. Because we know Draymond Green is kind of a facilitator on offense. So you can't burn him out on Luka. Obviously, Steph and Jordan Poole are too small. They'll, they'll get destroyed by Luka inside, outside, wherever. And Klay Thompson, you, you alluded to this, you know, is not quite himself on the defensive end coming back from the multitude of injuries he's had. It has to be Wiggins. That's what I want to see. If Wiggins accepts that challenge and he becomes something of a two-way player, even more so than he's been, then I think that puts the Golden State Warriors at a huge advantage. Now, an interesting thing with this series is these are two teams who, in the last round, both of them should have been exploited on the inside, and neither of them were. Now they're facing each other, where neither team is equipped to exploit the other team on the inside. Not with big men. They can exploit each other with guards penetrating to the basket, but not with actual big men. So that makes this series interesting. From the Dallas side, I want to see, because now the spotlight is bright. Luka Doncic was playing with house money against the Suns. Nobody really thought they'd win that series. Now you're in a position where people are starting to lean Dallas. They saw what happened in that Phoenix series. They want Luka Doncic. As you said this earlier in the show, they want Luka Doncic to be the next one. They, they want the Giannis Antetokounmpo reign to be a one-year thing as far as best player in the world. Maybe not even a full year, a nine-month thing. They want that title to go to Luka. So now that the spotlight is on and you're starting to finally have some expectations to the floor, Luka didn't really have expectations. As long as he put up his numbers, it was okay for Dallas to lose in the first round. And to your point with the comparison to Dirk Nowitzki, I don't know how many people realize that championship over the Heat was the last playoff series that Dirk Nowitzki ever won. So Nowitzki basically got an eight, nine-year pass <laughs> after winning that championship. And Luka could do the same thing here. And I agree with you. They don't even have to win the finals. They beat Golden State after doing what they did to Phoenix. I think Luka's set for the next decade because they want him to be in that position. So it's going to be interesting to see now that Luka knows all this. He knows all this. He's very well aware of what his status is in the NBA right this second. Knowing what he knows about being potentially named the next face of the league, can he maintain the type of play I've talked about throughout this postseason where he dials it back some? He still has to be aggressive, but there has to be a balance. Can he stay balanced or does he go out there and try to beat the Warriors by himself? That's the biggest thing I'm curious to see. If Luka decides he wants to be a 45-15-7 guy, Golden State's going to win this series. But if Luka says, hey, Jalen Brunson, hey, Spencer Dinwiddie, the guys that combined for, you know, 48 points in game seven, be a part of the offense with me. If he does that and he keeps the offense more balanced, it's still going to be Luka-centric. But if he keeps it more balanced, then I think Dallas can make this quite a series. With that said, I'm going to do what I did in the last round. You know, Memphis came in maybe a little hotter than Golden State in some ways. Dallas, in some ways, is coming into this series a little hotter. I'm going to rely on the experience. I'm going to rely on the resilience of the Warriors here. And I'm going to say that the Warriors find a way 
to win this series, I'm going to show Luca a lot more respect because I think he has earned this much. You know, because I said Dallas would just win one game against Phoenix, and like you said, they won four. So I'm going to say Golden State. In seven, I don't like to, to call both conference finals going the distance, but I just have that much respect for how Dallas is playing right now. And assuming that Dinwiddie and Brunson, and I named them in particular because spot-up shooters will always be able to play with Luka. Can other ball handlers get involved with Luka? That's going to be the question. Assuming they do, I think Dallas can force a game seven, but I think game seven Clay shows up this time. <laughs> Along with game six Clay, I think he's going to have a strong end to this series. I think Curry knows what's on the line for him as far as people still doubting his ability to show up in the biggest series, people still holding over his head to no finals MVPs things and not showing up in the biggest moments, even though his numbers suggest he's doing all right in the playoffs. I think Curry's going to be extra motivated. And, you know, I think Jordan Poole's going to be comfortable in that third score role, knowing he can come off the bench and just shoot and the pressure's not on him at this stage, now that it looks like he's kind of back offensively, I think that's enough to put the Warriors over the top. This is a tougher call than I thought it would be a week ago, but I'm going to take the Golden State Warriors to win this series in seven. All right, so Western Conference Finals, Golden State versus Dallas Mavericks. You know, I picked Golden State to go to the finals. Um, that was predicting they would be playing the Suns in the, in the Western Conference Finals. That clearly did not happen. Uh, F you sons. Um, but, uh, I'm all stick with it. Yeah, I, you're right. The Dallas Mavericks and Luca and just everyone, uh, maybe I'm just riding the game seven high and just the, the beat down that they gave the Suns. But like you said, they didn't even play great basketball. 57 points at half. Isn't you shouldn't be up by 30 <laughs> with 57 points. Like it, I, this is the thing. This is an interesting matchup, and and you brought it up, and we brought it up in the last episode in our last analysis. Both these teams don't have anyone in the interior, right? Like so, you know, unless Maxi Cleaver decides not to shoot threes, or Dwight Powell, for some reason, turns into a banger. I I don't see. I don't. <sighs> The small ball lineup favors Golden State. Don't get me wrong. Brunson was punking CP3 in the paint. Oh, yeah. He's not going to do... like I know people are like, oh, he'll just have Steph on him. No. He's going to have Clay or Wiggins or Poole or someone bigger that he's not going to be able just to back him down than hit a fadeaway on him. Steph is going to be on Bullock or someone else who's just spotting up and... I have no fear of Reggie Bullock in the paint. Even though he's probably four or five inches taller than Steph Curry, Golden State has always done a great job of just hiding Curry on defense so he doesn't just get posted up and back down in the paint. And if he does, then you have Draymond or you have Wiggins or someone come over and help, right? So the small ball lineup favors Golden State, in my opinion. Um like a lot. Like I I don't trust Dorian Finney Smith, which I think he's a great three and D player. I don't trust him. I don't trust Bullock. I don't trust Brunson. I don't trust Dinwiddie. Dinwiddie had one good game in that series. And that was game seven. I don't I don't trust them. And I love Brunson. I think Brunson has shown that he can handle 
being the main guy and and because he pretty much beat Utah, right? So, um, I just don't know if I trust them with a Clay Thompson on them, with an Andrew Wiggins on them, right? If even Jordan Poole, Jordan Poole's not a great defender, but he's 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 taller and and longer than a CP3, a Devin Booker. Um, so I just don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think it favors, but then again, I also thought the Suns were a better defensive team than what they showed against Dallas. So, you know, I don't, I'm all over the place now. Like my whole, I thought I had it figured out. And I thought, again, Dallas was going to maybe win. I think I said two games, you said one and they won four. So I don't know. I, I'm going to say Golden State in five. And that's no disrespect to the Mavericks. That's not disrespectful to to Luca. Um, I think Luca's going to get his. I just I I think it's going to be very similar to the Milwaukee Boston series, where sure Luca can get thirty forty points a game, but it's going to be on seven for thirty one shooting or ten for thirty one, ten free throw. Right? It's going to be. I think it's going to be very inefficient. Um, Golden State, unless they have one of those Game Five against Memphis games, I think, I think they're in the Western Conference Finals. I don't care if Steve Kerr's coaching them or not. I think they all realize where they're at. Right? Post KD, this is very reminiscent of Harrison Barnes, Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green. Young Andre Eagle, younger Andre Iguodala, right? Um, this reminds me a lot of that team, but they weren't known then, right? No one thought they would make it to the finals then. And Andrew Wiggins is a little bit of an upgrade over Harrison Barnes, in my opinion. Um, oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, they don't have a big guy like a Bogut or, you know, someone that can to help facilitate the offense. Uh, Looney's not going to be getting 22 boards. I, that's never going to happen again. Um, but... I don't know. I just see Golden State getting the, the job done. I think they realize they might not have many more years left, you know, as as this core unit. And, and in the Western Conference, there's a lot of teams. For example, I think Denver, if Michael Porter Jr. and Jamal Murray come back healthy next year, I don't they're not a six seed. They could be the two seed. They could be the they could be the one seed. Depending on how healthy that ACL is of Murray. Let's not forget what Jamal Murray was doing. Again, I know it was in the bubble. Let's not forget what he was doing before he got injured. He's not a scrub. Jamal Murray is one of my favorite young guys in the NBA. Um, he complements Jokic really well. And if Jokic doesn't have to carry the whole team, he's going to be even more efficient. So um, I just think the Western Conference and then Memphis is going to come back. They're not going anywhere, in my opinion. Um, so I think the Warriors realize. Like you said, they got real lucky, got home court in the Western Conference Finals as a three seed. I think they win both games at home. I have a feeling Dallas is going to get one at home. And then I think Golden State is going to get one in Dallas, and then they're going to want to close it out coming back home for the game for game five. Um, that's just how I see it happening. I think Steph Curry's going to go crazy. We still haven't had one of those patented eight three-point, nine three-pointer games from Steph Curry yet. We still haven't had – we just haven't had a, a classic Splash Brothers 
70 points from Stephen Clay type game yet in the playoffs. And and we're in the Western Conference Finals now. So if it's going to happen, I think it's going to happen on this stage. Um, Draymond's going to bully whoever he's playing. So, you know, Dorian Finney-Smith's not going to be getting the rebounds and, and doing the offensive boards like he was doing against the Suns. Uh, again, I just... I don't know. I just don't have faith in looking at the Dallas roster compared to the Golden State roster. I, but then again, I felt this way against going them against going Phoenix. So you know, I I could be proven wrong again, and if I am, it, I'll be fine with that. Seeing Luca and the Dallas Mavericks in the finals will not be a bad thing for the NBA. It'll be a good thing for the NBA. Um, seeing Steph Curry and them in the finals will also be a good thing for the NBA. So I don't I don't think there's a loser out of whoever loses this series uh, from a fan perspective. But um, you know, I'm I'm excited to see the series. I just think Golden State wins it in five, and that's just what I'm going to go with. That's just my gut, um, and I think it's going to be Golden State Celtics in the finals. So I had Milwaukee beating Golden State in our previous podcast, um, just based off of the defense. If the Celtics make it. Or the Heat. I don't... The finals is going to be tough. So my prediction so far is Golden State versus the Celtics in the finals. I'm going to go with if we can get to the finals. And this could change depending on how these finals play out. And we're going to have another episode uh, for that. But as looking at it right now, if all the rosters stay the same and everyone stays healthy, I'm going to go Boston in seven uh as of now again this could change in our next episode and we'll obviously do a finals podcast episode and all that good stuff but as of right now just basing it off of what we've seen i just think the east's defense is going to what carries whoever comes out of the east to a championship this year yep so you've got golden state really taking them out in a hurry kind of golden state in five and i think that's a kind of a respect thing for the warriors i've got it going longer um, I think for me, two things. One, there's a part of me that kind of expects Golden State to just throw a game away. And it, just, it just seems like every series this team plays in, and it's weird because there's no team that's got the level of experience in the playoffs in the postseason that this team does with its core players, especially their core players together. So it's kind of weird to me that a team that knows how to turn it up in a postseason seems to want to turn it down at least one game a series. So I think they'll give Dallas one and then maybe lose a game or two that they're actually trying to win. It'll be interesting to see if that happens. Uh, The other thing is, um, for me, I am higher on the Dallas supporting cast than you are. So I think that's a big reason for our difference in the prediction as far as how long the series is going to go. So that'll be something to keep an eye on for sure. Now I'm with you on Reggie Bullock. I will not put my trust in a Tar Heel. So I understand that. But I think if you can get a good game or two out of Dorian Finney-Smith, I think that's reasonable. He, he can nail that corner three if he's left open. I think you can get good games out of him. I think you can get good, good games out of Maximilian Kleva. And, yes, I'm using his full name because I like it. But, you know, I think you can get a couple of games where he's hot. And then I think you can get a couple of those X-factor games from somebody like Adavis Bertans. And we know Bertans is not reliable. But, you know, I watched him on the Spurs be a pretty good three-point shooter. He can give you a game or two out of seven where he hits 
four, five, three. So I think those other guys come through unpredictably, unevenly, but I think they come through in moments to force this series to be extended. But ultimately, I do think that championship pedigree starts to come into play. Warriors have been here and done that. The Mavericks are figuring out things on the fly. And I do think that experience makes a difference. But I'm curious to see as how how those role players show up or don't show up for the Mavericks. Going into the finals, you know, we've, we've got the same teams now. <laughs> you know, I, I lost Phoenix out of the West bracket. You lost Milwaukee out of the East bracket. So <laughs> we've kind of converged. And now we're both at a point where, based on who's left, we've got Golden State and Boston in the finals. Um, I'd love to make this more exhilarating and exciting it's 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 kind of more fun in a way when we're on opposite sides of things but i've been riding the boston train for a good while now and if we do get boston golden state and again this can change by the time we do our next show so we, we do want to put that disclaimer out there based on you know who wins who doesn't win who's healthy who's not but right now if i had to pick today on a futures bet I would take the Celtics in six. I just think that they can put the length and the defense on the Splash Brothers. I think Marcus Smart matches up very well from a defensive standpoint against Stephen Curry. Going to make him work for those shots. I think he can force Curry into having an inefficient series. And I think when you look at Tatum and Brown, again, these are excellent two-way players. And I, that, that's what makes me love Boston so much is that they're two-star players do it on the defensive end. I think they match up quite well against the likes of Clay Thompson and Jordan Poole. So I think they can shut down a lot of that three-point shooting. It's Golden State, so you're not going to stop all the splashing. But I think that they can avoid, you know, a whole splash whirlpool and, you know, keep it to a, a ripple in some cases, and that's going to be enough to make the difference. So I'm going with the Celtics and I'm going with the Celtics, like I said, in six games, I'll take them a game earlier than you. And again, I'm, I'm riding that defense and the ability to, to score key buckets with their superstar players. So in the case of Tatum teetering on superstar, I won't give them that status yet, but their star players, their key players, the ability to, to score at both wing positions and ability to defend at both wing positions combined with, the role players starting to gain more confidence, seeing guys like Grant Williams, hopefully there's some carryover effect. He'll never take 18 threes again. Don't ask me, just ask Jason Tatum. Tatum said that in the press conference. Do not get used to that. But that confidence boost means Grant Williams is more likely to knock down a three in a key moment if he's left open. Same with the Peyton Pritchard. Is he going to average 15 a game all of a sudden? No. But if he gets an open look, he can knock that down. So... I think that confidence boost was huge for them going on. I hope there's a carryover effect for them. And if that happens, then we're talking about the Celtics continuing to be the best team in basketball like they have been for going on four months and some change now. Yeah, so that was our NBA playoff uh, preview, review, uh, future bets all in one. Um, and one thing I just want to touch on, in the era, or as everyone calls it, the era of super teams, the final four teams remaining, can you call any of them a super team? Boston, draft all their guys are draft picks, right? Like, besides Horford, the, their main core is, is draft picks. Um, Golden State, I understand that they brought KD in and made a super-duper team, but 
Steph Curry, Clay, Draymond, all draft picks. Jordan Poole, draft pick. I mean, Wiggins was brought in, but, I mean, that was also Minnesota getting rid of him for D'Angelo Russell. I don't, you know, it, that is what it is. I think, you know, but, you know, at Dallas, I mean, Luka is a superstar, but no one's calling them a super team. They tried it with with Porzingis and chipped his ass out. So, um, Miami, they got Butler, but no one's calling them a super team. So, it's just interesting. In the year of super teams, last year, Milwaukee won. No one's calling them a super team. And this year, the finals for both conferences, you don't got the Sixers with Harden and Bede. You don't got the Nets. Lakers didn't even make the playoffs. You know, I mean, some people, you know, the Suns, you know, you people think Devin Booker is the next Kobe, which, again, we're putting a stop to that. So that's the last time we're ever going to hear that. But if Kobe and Chris Paul are together, which a lot of people still complain about, um, isn't that a super team? So I'm just saying, like, it's interesting that all these teams that, you know, everyone says it's a super team era, it's a super team era. Milwaukee last year won it all, and a team this year that's going to win it all, I would not consider a super team. So it's my final thoughts on the NBA. And transitioning over to our new uh, fun end of the show series is what did we see today or what have we seen lately since our last episode that we want to discuss? So I'm going to pass it over to Julius. All right, so... You know, as we discussed before, with and something we want to do with these kind of closing thoughts, this is a show that doesn't want to focus solely on the major headline. You know, we want to be a sports show. So we want to cover a little bit of everything. So that's what this segment's about, and that's what I want to remind people. So with that said, today, I want to get into a little bit of boxing. Something we haven't touched on this show yet. And specifically, so this past weekend, we had a unification fight between Jermell Charlo and Brian Castaño. Actually, a rematch. Charlo, that was a, this was an offensive fight. If you, if you like offense, we talk about offense in every sport. If you like offense in boxing and you missed that fight, go watch it. <laughs> it's on YouTube or wherever right now. So go watch Charlo versus Castaño too. Charlo wins the fight via knockout late in the fight. That fight was a good 10 rounds of action. Charlo lands the big left, knocks, eventually knocks Castaño down. A bit of a delayed reaction, but knocks him down and pretty much ends the fight. Castaño got back up just to get beat up some more. I don't know why the ref let him do that, but Charlo wins the fight, unifies the division. After the fight, Charlo is asked about pound-for-pound rankings. And he goes off on his soapbox and says, you know, that's for you nerds, you bloggers, all this other stuff. It's not a real thing. I don't care about it. All I know is I got all the belts. And that's all that matters to me. And that got me thinking that, you know what? This man is absolutely right. These pound-for-pound rankings, as far as I'm concerned, have to go. Because they make no sense. As far as I'm concerned, I don't understand the case against Terrence Crawford being the pound-for-pound number one. To me, that's an easy choice. This man's been undefeated. He wiped out an entire division. People talk about this guy ducking people in, in Crawford. How did you win all the belts and duck people? Who did you want him to fight? What non-title person, what non-champion was he ducking? 
Imagine this man for getting all the belts and then going up a weight class and immediately winning another belt. So this man is taking belts left and right. He's never lost. 38 and 0, 29 knockouts, knocked out his last seven opponents. His last nine opponents have failed to finish the fight against him. I don't understand the case against Crawford being number one. And the fact that Crawford is not a unanimous vote, but a number one pound for pound guy, to me, it validates everything Charlo said. What are you watching? Who's voting? Why is it? There was another fight recently. A fight between the darling, maybe the Luca of boxing, and Canelo Alvarez. He fought Dimitri Bivol at 175. So Canelo moved up as he as he should. He's a big guy. Big guy for, you know, a super middleweight. And so Bivol wins this fight. Bivol's undefeated. Why? Is Canelo still ahead of Bevel in the pound for pound rankings? What do you have to do? Canelo already has a loss on his record before Bevel against Floyd Mayweather, another guy that's accused of ducking guys. But, you know, apparently Canelo is not worth ducking, even though he's a pound for pound number one guy. Canelo was fortunate to get the draw that he got against Gennady Golovkin. So I'd give him a loss for that fight. And Bevo, while I'll acknowledge Bevo never really hurt Canelo, he thoroughly won this fight. This wasn't, uh, maybe, I don't know, what were the judges looking at? No, no, no. You ask 100 people who won that fight, if they're unbiased, they will tell you Bevo won, and he won convincingly. How is beating somebody head-to-head -head and having a higher percentage and having the belt not enough to get you ranked higher than that person? Boxing is a one-on-one -on -one sport. Okay, this, this is not basketball or football or something where there's other factors that can weigh into why one player wins more than another. In boxing, you win because you won. You lost because you lost. So it should be pretty easy when guys go head-to-head -head who to rank ahead of, ahead of who. So that, that's bothering me. Vasil Lomachenko is another one that bothered me. A product of hype. And I understand, Vasil Lomachenko... He's a marvel to watch when he's going through his boxing routine. So he does kind of crazy hand-eye coordination stuff, punching tennis balls on the fly and all kinds of crazy stuff. Lomachenko was granted a world championship match in his second professional fight. That is ridiculous. Okay? In boxing, you just don't get an opportunity like that. And I understand Lomachenko, oh my gosh, look at his amateur record and all this. No, 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 no. That's like saying, look at somebody's minor league record in baseball, and that should be why they win major league MVP. No, you don't get a world title shot your second fight. And of course, what did Lomachenko do? Lose to a solid veteran who's like more of a gatekeeper fighter, not even a great fighter. Orlando Salido. Decent. Decent. There's no shame in losing to him. But if you're that good, if you're good enough to get a championship fight in your second pro fight, you should be able to beat Orlando Salido. So the fact that you couldn't win that fight, and again, you lost kind of convincingly, means that they tried to hype you up too much. Now, he got another chance, again, earlier than he should, and he took advantage as far as Lomachenko goes. But then he ends up losing later on to Teofimo Lopez. So now you have a guy in Lomachenko who has two losses in half the fights that, that Terrence Crawford has had. You have a guy in Lomachenko who only has two knockouts in his last six fights. 
why is he ranked top 10? He shouldn't be. And there definitely should be any conversation about him being ahead of Crawford. And then Tyson Fury. What more does he have to do? Tyson Fury has everything. He has the belts. He's the linear champ. They, they love saying that about the heavyweight division in particular, linear championships. Tyson Fury is the champ. He's the guy nobody wants to stick. I don't understand why he's like seven or eight on so many of these pound for pound lists. What, what does he have to do? He is the only guy who could possibly get up from a Deontay Wilder punch. And maybe he did take 12 seconds to get up and they counted to not wink. But he did get up and he did finish the fight. This is a guy who's beaten Wilder multiple times when nobody else really wants to see Wilder. This is a guy who did what he was supposed to do against Dillian White. Knocked him out halfway through that fight. I really do want to see Fury versus Alexander Usyk. But I think when you look at their resumes, Usyk's another guy that hasn't knocked out a lot of people recently. I credit him for beating Anthony Joshua because I think Anthony Joshua's a fraud. I think he's built like Tarzan and fights like Jane. But this is about Usyk. Usyk's a solid fighter. He should be on the pound-for-pound list. I just don't think he should be ahead of Fury. And I don't understand the justification. Fury has fought more fights and is undefeated and he's a linear champ. So until Usyk beats Fury, I don't understand how you can rank them close right now. So I just want to say all that to say, do better. Whoever, whoever is behind these, and I don't even know who the people are, but whoever you are, you know who you are if you're putting these pound-for-pound pound rankings out. Fix them. Go by what happens. Stop putting your favorites at the top. Stop putting the friendly stories of the most marketable fighters at the top and go by resumes. Put Crawford at one, start there, and work your way down. Thank you very much. All right. Well, okay. Boxing it is. Not not a clearly Julius had to get something off his chest, y'all. Um Absolutely. <laughs> from, here. for my segment, I talked about it a little bit last episode. I'm gonna talk about it again. The NHL playoffs are happening at the same time as the NBA playoffs. And man, are they not disappointing. So we had multiple game sevens, and we all we were talking about game sevens for the NBA. The NHL had four game sevens going, and it was amazing. So we'll start at home. Caps ended up losing in game six to the Panthers in overtime. The Capitals, you know, they had their chances. It really sucks. Um, there was multiple games that they could have won. Um, so game four went to overtime. They lost three, two game five. They're up three, nothing. They end up losing five, three. And then game six goes to overtime and they lose four, three. Um, it, it, it sucks for the home fans. Um, Florida was the best team in, in this, in this, uh, conference, but, um, you know, they just didn't really have, they don't really have a lot of playoff experience to go back on, but they got the job done. The caps made it tough, but Ended up losing in six. Then you had the Maple Leaves and the Lightning. And this went seven games. And this was a hell of a series. Uh, they were going back and forth, especially games five, six, and seven. So the first four games were kind of blowouts each way. And then game five, four, three Maple Leaves. Game six, four, three Lightning in overtime. And then game seven was the Lightning two to one over the Maple Leaves. Uh, just 
just a great, great series. A uh, bunch of great players in there with Steven Stamkos and Austin Matthews. Um, it it was great. Uh, you know, the Lightning are going for a three-peat, which would be crazy. So for them to get through the Maple Leafs is a big, big step in the right direction. Um, you know, now they got to get through the Panthers, which I think they will do. Uh, we'll see. Um, I, I just don't think the Panthers are as good as their record says it was, but I could be wrong. Um, but I, I just think I think Tampa Bay is going to take that series in the battle uh, for Florida. Um, and then, so just continuing through the series, you then had the Hurricanes, who I talked about in the last season as my pick to go through. Um, they had the Bruins, which also went seven games. The best part about this was the Carolina Hurricanes social media team showed all the tweets, posts, everything of that uh, before the series, all the fans, everybody saying, be careful what you wish for, Carolina. The Bruins in the playoff is a different beast. And so at home, Carolina goes up 2-0. They go back to Boston. Boston wins both. So it's a tie series 2-2. Game five is in Carolina, and Carolina wins 5-1. Go back to Boston. The Boston wins 5-2, game six. So, of course, Game 7 at Carolina, this series, obviously, every home team won every game. Carolina gets it, pulls it through with a 3-2 win over Boston in Game 7. They're advancing to play the the next team that also, another Game 7, Rangers versus the Pittsburgh Penguins. And and this series was a back-and-forth one. Uh, You had the Penguins up 3-1. Crosby gets hurt. Became a different series. Rangers rattle off the next two to tie it 3-3. Game seven's in New York. Goes to OT. Rangers win 4-3. And so it's going to be the Hurricane versus the Rangers. I'm hoping for the Hurricane to keep pulling through since I picked them. Then you have the Colorado Avalanche who have been running through their division. And they won their series 4-0. They're no fun. They didn't want to make it a fun series. But then you have... Uh, Minnesota Wild versus the St. Louis Blues. You know, Blues decided to win that one in six. And then you had the Calgary Flames versus the Dallas Stars, which went seven, which was crazy because Dallas was the last team into the playoffs and a wild card. And they took the Flames seven, and it and it went OT. And, the, and again, another game seven that went to overtime, Flames 3-2. Um, and then... The last series, Edmonton Oilers, which we talked about a little bit in the last podcast, and the Kings, again, also went seven games. Uh, this one did not go to overtime, though. Game seven, Oilers won 2 nothing. But just this playoffs, and, and besides the Avalanche, who have been cruising um, all season, uh, it's just been exciting. It's just been, again, if you don't watch hockey, you need to turn on some of these games. It is... It is, again, impressive to watch someone hitting like football with the, you know, gracefulness of ice skating. I can't even ice skate. So for me to even think about shooting, doing a a slap shot, let alone a little wrist shot, uh, hitting somebody, avoiding somebody, uh, it's it's just crazy. Um, But so in the next round, you got the Florida Panthers against the Lightning, like I discussed. I'm picking the Lightning in that one. And then you got the Carolina Hurricanes versus the Rangers. I'm going to stick with my with my Hurricane pick. Uh, then you got the Avalanche versus the Blues. Again, Avalanche had 119 points this season, kind of just cruising. I'm going to go upset 
I'm going to pick the Blues over the Avalanche. Um, don't ask me why. Again, I'm not a huge NHL watcher, so don't go put that on the on the sports books. Then you got the Flames versus the Oilers. I like the Oilers. Uh, Connor McDavid, I think, is one of the best uh, players in the NHL. A lot of people do. He's been hyped since he's come in as a young kid, uh, and he's just kind of been backing it up now that they got some people around him in Edmonton. So I'm going to go Edmonton. I think it's going to be a great series, though. I hope there's more Game 7s. The intensity that which these guys play hockey and how serious you know they take it. And, and yes, hockey's been wanting to get more goals so people will watch. But the defense that is still involved in hockey, um, it's just an amazing sport to watch. So I hope you guys really tune in. The playoffs have been crazy. Like I said, multiple Game 7s, just crazy back-and-forth series. It's been it's been really, really fun to watch. I love that you're doing this. Uh, as far as the NHL recap, again, we want to be a show that is diverse. We don't want to be the show that's covering the same two or three topics or the same two or three people every week. So, you know, it's fun to hear you talk about hockey. Uh, I am certainly far, far from a hockey fan, so I'm just casually spectating as it goes along. The one thing I will say is, uh, the two game sevens that you uh, referenced, they happen on the same day as the two NBA game sevens. And we talk about how disappointing the NBA game sevens were. Just, you know, as somebody who's not a fan of any of those teams in particular, for anybody who was just rooting for good competitive basketball, you kind of got robbed outside of, you know, the first half of the uh, Celtics Bucks game. I love that in hockey, there's so much, it seems just to be so much more intensity. You didn't see a team just just tap out in, in game seven. You saw game sevens go to overtime. And, you know, what adds to the suspense even more is, you know, in basketball, you could have an overtime situation that ends up still being a blowout. You can have a 12-2, 14-2 run in overtime, and it, it, it's over. In hockey, every single second of overtime is absolutely critical. And so... Even as somebody, I love basketball a hundred times more than I love hockey. But the quality of each game on a game-to-game -game basis is just so much nicer in hockey. So, like you said, for anybody who's on the fence, we are encouraging you check out a little hockey. We don't expect you to become experts overnight. We certainly are. I definitely am not. I can't pronounce half these guys' names. I can't spell 80% of their names. But it's still fun to watch if you're a fan of sports and competition in general. It's not a difficult game to figure out. They're putting the, put the puck in the goal. I mean, there's, there's some rules that you may not understand, but even with that, the game is fun to watch. To just check out a game here or there, not even a whole game. Just check out a period and see if it piques your interest and go from there. Um as far as, you know, some, some teams, again, I don't have huge reasons to follow these teams. I went to NC State. We are neighbors, tenants with the Carolina Hurricanes. The Hurricanes won the Stanley Cup when I was in college. They brought the Stanley Cup to our campus. So as long as the Carolina Hurricanes are in it, I'm going to ride with Sebastian Ajo and whoever else is on the team. Let's go get it, Canes. I also am going to be a casual Oilers fan. Again, I said this on the last podcast. They got a guy named Leon. I mean, what, what more do you need? I understand that Connor McDavid is the guy on that team, but Leon Dreisaitl is the guy next to the guy. And as long as a guy named Leon is getting the job done in hockey, 
I got to root for that team too. So Hurricanes, Oilers, those are my default two favorite teams for now. They may not be my favorite teams in a couple of weeks, but hey, such is the life of somebody who's more of a casual hockey fan. And the last thing I'll say is I've been working with Patrick for a while now. And one thing I can say about Patrick is he has quite the success rate when it comes to his bold predictions. And so even when I, you know, not again, not knowing much about hockey, but when I hear him talk about how much the avalanche is cruising and the 119 points they had this season and everything else, and then I hear him not pick the avalanche to win in the next round against the Blues. I know he said, don't put it on your sports books and all that. I'm just here to say, don't dismiss it either. This guy has a magic touch when it comes to his bold predictions. If he says Blues over Avalanche, trust and believe I'm keeping a closer eye on that series than normal, just knowing what this man said. I appreciate the shout out there, and I can't wait to do bold predictions for the NFL season. That's probably one of my favorite things to do. Um, yeah, I love bowl predictions. Again, not as confident in the NHL. I'm not going to sit here and say I watch it like I do NFL or NBA, but um, I don't know. Colorado has just been uh, cruising, so I feel like, I don't know, something about the Blues team. We'll see. We'll see what happens, though. You know, I'm not sitting here thinking I'm going to have a good success rate in hockey, but, hey, the Canes and the Oilers pulled it out for me, so we'll, we'll just ride with that as we can. Um, last thing, I'm not going to even say it's the best thing I saw. It's probably one of the worst things I've seen. Um, God bless the Cincinnati Reds. You touched on them in our last podcast. I don't know if anyone saw this. It was talked about a lot on ESPN, social media. Um, I saw it. I know Julia saw it. They threw a no-hitter and lost a baseball game. So just to put that in context, pitchers threw the ball. To the catcher at home plate, the guy standing in the box that gets three strikes to swing at the ball did not get a hit. The ball did not travel off the bat to the outfield without someone trying to catch it, without it getting by somebody. They did not get a hit. I'm not going to talk about errors. I'm not going to talk about walks. There was a no-hitter. And they lost the game. If that is not the Cincinnati Reds season in a nutshell, I don't know what else a perfect metaphor can be in sports. Um, you know, I feel for the fans there. Um, I hope the season gets better. <laughs> this is not a bold prediction. It's not going to get better. <laughs> so uh, I feel bad for you, Cincinnati Reds. Um, I'm not going to touch on it too much. Uh, I'm going to let MLB kind of get into the swing of things. It's a long season, um, and I, I can't wait to discuss uh, MLB a little bit more in the future. But for now, my, my focus has been on NHL and NBA with the playoffs, obviously. Um, golf has a major happening this week. So, you know, if you guys are golf fans, tune into the majors. Um, it's the PGA Championship. But, uh, you know, that's that's what we'll discuss for now. Uh I'm going to the D.C. United game this Saturday, so that should be fun. Watch a little soccer down at Audi Field in D.C. Uh, again, soccer is one of those ones that it's the atmosphere and everything in person is just crazy. They, they play the drums and the, the, the 
fan support section on the wall goes nuts for 90 straight minutes. So um, if y'all have never been to a, to a soccer game, you know, I suggest checking out DC United. Um, the atmosphere is crazy. The new, the new stadium is real nice. Um, food's good, pricey, obviously, but it's a professional sports stadium. What, what, what else would you expect? So, uh, if you've never been to one, go to a game that's like middle of the week, like a Wednesday or a Thursday night game. They normally can get tickets for like 20 bucks. Like it's really not bad. There's really not a bad seat in the house. Um, and with that, I'll pass it over to Julius to, to wrap us up and uh, put a put a bow on this episode. I did initially think about making the Cincinnati Reds the topic of my closing thoughts once again, but I didn't want to come off as uh, this guy has has it in for the Cincinnati Reds. I didn't want to kind of mix it up from one week to the next, but I'm I'm glad to to continue to kind of pound on him some again because their own president came out and basically said screw the fans. So I'm I'm happy to do this. Now, in this game that they threw a no-hitter and lost in true Cincinnati Reds fashion, you had Hunter Green on the mound for the Reds. And for those who don't know, this is their super pitching prospect. Excellent pitcher. Excellent pitcher. He's still putting it together. He's still working on command issues, but the raw stuff is there. This guy can throw 102, 103 miles per hour. Insane. The strikeout rate's high. Again, he's going to need some time to work on the control. Lower the walks, get his whip down. But when that happens, this guy, this guy's going to be a, a top Beast. of rotation pitcher for a long time. Beast. It is a shame that he has to be handcuffed by that organization. A complete shame. A, an organization that, again, has this prize pitcher and is not trying to win and is not even trying to protect him. That's what I thought was really weird about this. It's a team that has nothing to play for. We're in an era now where it's almost automatic that you pull a pitcher after 100 pitches, if he gets that far, no matter how well he's thrown. Especially this early in the season. Once pitchers start getting into a rhythm and they've got 15 or so starts on their belt, under their belt, you may start extending them further. And especially this year when you had a short spring training, you would think that you kind of ease your pitchers in. Hunter Green pitched seven and a third in that game. Seven and a third, no hit innings. He was up to 118 pitches. And they just left him in there. He walked the last guy he faced because he was completely gassed, but they wouldn't take him out of the game. And so you're already mismanaging the one guy who was kind of an attraction for a team that you have built to not compete. So I don't know what's happening there. I, I, I hope either something changes or he gets out of there somehow. Is this? I don't know how he's going to get out of there because the way these contracts are set up, it doesn't make sense financially for him to leave for six or seven years. And the Reds probably aren't going to trade him, so he, he might be stuck. But I, I, I just hope his situation gets better because he deserves a better fate than to throw seven and third no-hit innings. And he got the loss. He didn't get pulled and get a no decision. He got straddled with the loss in this game. And, you know, it's, it's just a shame to see that he was overworked in this game, kept in way longer than he should have been kept in. Again, in an era where they're normally too cautious about protecting their pitchers, you left him in to struggle down the stretch and to get the loss. You know, the bullpen came in and did enough of a job to preserve the no-hitter. But, of course, you would lose, and not just lose, lose to another bad team. You know, you found a way to lose to the Pirates like that. It's one thing to lose to... You know, the Dodgers or somebody like that, but you're going to lose to the Pirates with a no-hitter? How is that even possible? The one team that's almost as bad as you, and you can't even beat them on a day when you give up no hits. So, 
you know, I, I could probably make rants about Cincinnati every week. I guess, I guess somebody had to replace the Bengals as a sorry team out there. Now that the Bengals are good, I guess the Reds feel like they got to catch the baton and be cellar dwellers. But uh, you know, I, I just hope that Hunter Green can get out of there miraculously because that team, quite frankly, does not deserve that pitcher. All right, so for our next episode, we'll probably be talking about the NBA Finals. So we'll see y'all then, or we'll listen. Y'all listen to us then, and uh, can't wait to get to see what the conference finals uh, on both sides, East West, pan out. And as always, thank you for listening to the Two Guys Four Balls podcast. Follow us on any social media platform. Uh, we're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. Check us out. Thank you for listening to the Two Guys Four Balls podcast. 